what's the scene about? It's about New Jersey asking why the watermelon. People have always said, what's the answer? I say, well, after New Jersey got the answer, what did it mean to him? And, well, okay, he absorbed the fact, but then the guy is an epicure. It's little known. New Jersey loves to cook. He's now hanging out at the Institute, and there are watermelons everywhere. And I was sent the other day because I said, I know I'm going to be asked about the watermelon again, something that I could say different about it. And I get this recipe. Uh, this is something that it's not clear to me whether New Jersey created this recipe or whether he cut it out from somewhere. But I'll tell you one thing. Uh, it's called uh, chicken in a watermelon. And um, you should yeah, put that up somewhere so, so fans can try it themselves. But it's a favorite here at the Institute. I just was looking at a menu in the cafeteria. The thing is, it's on there every day. It's like, and to me, you be the judge is the most disgusting recipe I've ever heard. Welcome to Not A Bomb Podcast, the movie podcast where we take a second look at underappreciated movies. You know, the movies that bombed at the box office or the critics just tore apart. I am your host, Troy, and with me is my co-host and best buddy, Brad. How are you this evening, Brad? Doing fantastic, man. Uh, you're in my house. I know. <laughs> you're we're, in my house. We're my sitting across house. a table yes. and I'm staring at you live, live instead of like a little screen on the computer. It's weird. I haven't seen you in real life in, well, like over a year. It, it has been over a year. This yeah. stupid COVID thing. Yeah. I don't like it. But you took a road trip. I did. Uh, I had so much carryover vacation from last year. It was like, you know what? If we're going to record a podcast, I'm going to drive 10 hours and see my buddy Brad and 10 hours to record in your kitchen. Yes. Yes. Hey, I fed you. You did. It was a fantastic Domino's pizza. <laughs> the uh, crust was just delightful. Yes. The pepperoni job, slightly burnt, but yeah. you know what? What do you ask? But uh, hey, everybody. Yeah, it's we're, we're excited. We're talking about uh, Buckaroo Banzai tonight from 1984, or the official title is The Oof. Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension from 1984. This was your pick, right, Brad? Yeah, so when we ran that uh, contest for... Um, Mike McGranahan's book, we said, hey, send us in some recommendations. And I believe this was from Kevin. Kevin. And um, he requested Buckaroo Banzai. And I had not seen Buckaroo Banzai in a long time. And I know that, you know, it, it definitely has a cult following. And again, it's one of those movies that when you look at movies that are bombs, Buckaroo Banzai always comes up. So, you know, it was going to get done at some point in time. But we moved it up on the list. So, Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Yeah, no, and it's a fantastic pick. I got to say, we'll probably have another giveaway here really soon because the cool thing about giving uh, Mike's book out, My Year with Chevy, we got so many great recommendations. And I feel like our list sort of filled up for the rest of the year almost on top of the list that we already yes, had from exactly. last year. So this was not on our radar per se. The podcast is not going anywhere. No, not for at least, uh, you know, 2021. Now, it'll be touch and go in 2022, I'm sure. But right now, hey, it's a good sign that I can actually travel across a couple of states and sit down and see you in person. 
yeah, we're we're making progress. Yes, you know, it, it it's, it's slow and steady, but we are making progress. So that's all I can. You know, I appreciate you making the trip and seeing me and my family. And I know you have other people to see, but this is gonna be fun. I'm and, and we and for full disclosure, we're six feet apart. Yeah, we've been wearing masks the whole time. The whole mask. <laughs> I'm in a full like hazmat, hazmat suit. suit. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, this outbreak. In I, here. Yeah, my outbreak gear. No, this this will be fun. I, I the thing about podcasts in general, and I think you and I have talked about it. What I don't know. Movies to me have always been sort of the great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you come from, but when you just ask that question, like, "Hey, what's your favorite film?" or you know, Pulp Fiction. We know, oh, Brad. Yes. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's always one of those topics that uh, it it just brings people together and you can have a healthy debate, you know, and, and just have a lot of fun with it and podcasting specifically listening to other podcasts, like gentleman's guide to midnight cinema, night of living podcast, uh, VHS files. This has really brought, I, I guess, to us a very close circle of friends that we, you know, still talk with on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is the reason why I will go out and drive 10 hours just to see people, not not to record podcasts, obviously, but, you know, you make friends out of this kind of thing. So even though we might only have like 10 or 12 people listening, I'm going to go visit all 10 or 12 people <laughs> and, and just hang out with them because it's it's always fun. And, and even tonight, the first thing we got together when we ordered that lovely, delicious uh, thin crust Domino's pizza. <laughs> what what movie did we sit down and watch? We Brad? watched Singles because I hadn't seen it in a while, and we had talked about it on the podcast. And I was like, just going through all my movies. I'm like, hey, we're going to watch Singles, and you were like, oh, absolutely. And then now we have all these songs stuck in our head. So you know, if we randomly start singing uh, the soundtrack from Singles, that's because we just literally got done watching it. I'm still humming Dyslexic Heart in my head because yes. <laughs> that yes. song right. plays the whole thing. You yeah, should. it's an amazing. It's song. just a catchy tune. Yeah. Okay, well, look, we don't have a top three of anything. We were just excited to get together. Yeah. This may be a total, I don't know, crash and burn podcast, but... Shit show. It, it could be. Yeah. I've, I'm just smiling through the whole thing because I'm seeing you in the flesh. Yeah. And what's funny is my one of my favorite memories of us getting together, and it was it, it was when Tabitha was here, and I, I think we had hung out, and I can't remember if it was the winery or we were going to the winery, Huber's No, we were Farm. going to that sports bar. Oh, we were going to that sports bar. Yeah. That's right. So you were getting ready. You were staying at your brother's house at that time. So we met you there. And you go, well, hold on a second. You put in Pulp Fiction. You made us watch Pulp Fiction while you were getting ready. Yeah. And in the other room, we heard you quoting Pulp Fiction the whole time. Yeah. Uh, well, so I mean, yeah. I, I had to fit the stereotype. Like, anytime people come to see me, they're like, okay, I guess we have to do the obligatory watch Pulp Fiction with Brad so we can watch him, you know, light up like a schoolgirl. Um, yeah, so I had to, you know, put you through that. No, it was, it was fun. Yeah. I literally know every word of that movie. It's sad. No, he literally does. It's hilarious. (laughs) Okay. Well, Hey, look, tonight's movie, Brad, it's, I don't know every word to this movie. (laughs) It's, it's very quotable, but it's one of those films that when you talk about cult films from the eighties, movies that bombed, this always comes up in the discussion. Yes, yes, yes. And we're going to, and this is. I think this is a perfect gateway drug to a film that we're going to talk about in May as well, which is Big Trouble in Little China. I figured that was going to come up. Yes, and it's probably going to come up tonight as well. But let's talk about the background of this one. I feel like if anybody's listening to a movie podcast, if anybody's listening uh, to a podcast that has any type of, I, I don't know, I... I guess cult movie podcast. If if you're a fan, you everybody has talked about this film, so I'm not quite sure what we're going to add 
in terms of uh, new ideas or new thoughts or new criticisms. But at the end of the day, it's I think it's just going to be us kind of having fun with it. Yeah, because I haven't seen this movie. I was trying to think about the last time I watched it. I think it's probably been like probably my freshman or sophomore year in college. And that was 15 years ago. So wow, we are yeah. getting old. Yeah. yeah Holy so, cow. Yeah. And, and it's funny, you say that in college, was that, so I have to ask you, was it, when was the first time you saw it? Was it in college or was it before that? I think I, we, we watched it in high school. So it was probably mm, around 2000. Um, you know, someone had said, Hey, my older brother was into this movie um, we like dumb movies. Let's give this a watch. And it was like, okay, sure. And that's all the convincing I needed. Cause the guy said, this movie's called Buckaroo Banzai. And I was like, okay, I'm in, I'm in no more. That's all I need. So. Yeah. And it's weird because I think my introduction to this is I've read issue two. So when this movie came out, Marvel comics had done a comic magazine, uh, adaptation, and then they split the, the magazine into two issues, I think for the comics and I read issue two and was instantly intrigued with the film, but I didn't see it in the theaters until much later. And this is, I, I would call these one of the HBO films. So in high school, when we come home and watch HBO, you, you might watch Beastmaster. Or, yeah, you know, so, yeah. I mean, there, there was just a staple of HBO films that seemed to play all the time. And anytime this thing came on, we watched it. And then anytime it, we'd go to a video store and it was on V, we'd, we'd watch it, eventually buy it. I don't think I saw it in the theaters until a few years later, even after it was released. Like and, one of those like novelty screenings where, you know, like do it at midnight or something like that. Or was it just like a normal, I, I think, I think it was a novelty. Yeah. I think it was a novelty screening. Okay. But again, I have a lot of fond memories with this because like you, you bring your friends over and you would watch this thing. And when we get into our thoughts, um, about the film, I I feel like I went back to high school watching it all over again. But before we get into the details about, you know, what was going on behind the camera, in front of the camera, Brad, let's talk about the box office, this thing, and the critical reception, because this one has a pretty interesting history. Yeah, so a budget of, of kind of a modest $17 million, um, that's in 1984 money. So, I mean, you're looking at, you know, they're spending some money on this thing. Um, return on investment. $6.3 million, and that is all domestic. This thing did not release internationally because it barely released domestically. Um, it's opening weekend. It opens in 236 theaters. That's super low. Super low. Um, so, unfortunately, it only garners $620,000 its opening weekend. That is good enough to put it in 16th place when it comes out. It, in 16th place? 16th place. Okay, yes. for opening weekend, opening 16th week, place. Opening weekend. Oh, my God. <laughs> guess how many films they tracked uh, that week? How many? 16. So it was dead, dead last. last. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, it actually kind of runs through, so it's the August um, 10th is its release date. It runs in the theaters until December 9th, which is how many months? Four months? Yeah, and I think this one had a pretty interesting release schedule on top of that because while it played in major cities, I think they ran it in drive-ins. Yeah, it was a drive-in movie as well. Um, during certain, But it was only a drive-in movie in like certain sections within the U.S. Okay, and I think it was one of those, hey, it's a double feature sort of deal. I'm, so, I'm sure it was. Yeah, it was yeah. not like, yeah. It wasn't the top bill. No, absolutely not. Um, so obviously lost money. Um, let's... Uh, Let's see the films that released August 
1984, because there's some interesting ones. Uh, Red Dawn. The Ooh. Origi- remember, the original. The original <laughs> yes. Red Dawn. Okay. Do you remember that movie Cloak and Dagger? I love Cloak and Dagger. Dabney Coleman? Yes. Oh, my God. I love Cloak and Dagger. And I'm sure you're going to say you love this movie, too, so I'm just going to say it. Dreamscape? Yeah, Dennis Quaid. Yes. That uh, that freaked me out. And I remember seeing that in the theaters and the big guy turns into the snake head the same, thing. Yeah, that's Ooh. like Indiana Jones, but not Indiana Jones, right? What it's Indiana Jones wannabe within dreams. Yes. But okay. it's yeah, it has another cult following, I think. Okay. So we will probably do it at some point. In time. I'm sure. It seems like a ton of these films that came out just in mid eighties that are super popular now were either ahead of their time or we just made them popular yeah, once yeah. we started getting a little bit more money in our pocket. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, because we'll buy anything now. Exactly. Um, the Woman in Red. Oh, with Gene Wilder. Yes. Okay. Um, Tightrope. Uh, Clint Eastwood. Yes. And the uh, cannibalistic humanoid. Uh, Chud. Chud. Cannibalistic humanoid underground, underground dwellers. dwellers. Yes. With uh, what's the guy from? He was one. Of, he was a wet bandit. What's his name? Uh, Wasn't he in it? Daniel Stern? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So he was a are, wet bandit. <laughs> yes. Daniel Stern. Like the whole Daniel that Stern. guy that got hit with a paint can. <laughs> I'm sure he's loving, like, oh, my whole, you know, filmography. I did all these movies. That dude that was in Bushwhack. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the films that came out during the time of uh, Buckaroo Banzai. Now, I will say, right now, Buckaroo Banzai on Rotten Tomatoes has a 68. Um, kind of Metacritic score or Metacritic Rotten Tomatoes score. I will say that during the time of release, critics were not too uh, fond of this movie and it got pretty um, kind of bad reviews. I think people were like, this thing is all over the place, blah, blah, blah. The reviews that are out there now are kind of in retrospect. So one of the things with older movies now is people go back and review them. And if you think about it, most people who go back to review a movie are going to do it because they like it. Right. So it yeah. kind of, it throws off the sort of, you know, the whole reason why you have a, you know, Rotten Tomatoes meter or whatever is to kind of, you know, accumulate all these scores, but people are only going to do it if they are more than likely going to give it a good score. So it raises up the, the average, but uh, audience score is 69. So I guess maybe that throws out my theory, but um, you know, so critics 68 audience 69. So this one, when, when we talk about films in general, a lot of times we're talking about the budget and then we're turning around and talking about uh, in order for it to be profitable or to make money, you take whatever the budget is, multiply it times 2, 2.5 because of marketing spend and that's what it makes. Yeah. This one is incredibly interesting because there is zero marketing zero spend marketing. to it. As soon as the studio looked at it and kind of did some test screenings, and they shopped it around. I, 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 if you have the Shout Factory release of this, so Shout Factory, I, I think, is one of the boutique labels out there that's doing you know Blu-ray releases and special editions of some very unique films. They have a line called Shout Select. This was number one of Shout Select, and I believe the Blu-ray is out of print now. Yes, it is. It is very expensive to try to get. Yes, but if you get your hands on it, there is a fantastic documentary on there that is longer than the film. It runs about two hours. I mean, the special features on this thing, they, they get everybody behind the scenes to talk about this. And when we talk about the cast, it, it's a pretty loaded cast. But what is interesting when they talk about the release, because there's a whole section within that document about the release, 
the studio is showing it to, you know, fifth graders <laughs> because they think it's a kid's film. That doesn't work out. Then they show it, you know, to people who don't have jobs and showing up to theaters at two o'clock on a Tuesday doesn't really test well there. And even the marketing department, when they looked at it, they didn't really know how to market it. And we'll, I'll share a story here soon when we talk about the development portion. But this one really, when you talk about how much money was spent on it, it was pretty much close to what the production budget was because there was zero marketing yeah, behind this yeah. thing. And it still failed to make money. So. And it still failed to make money. No, yeah. I'm, I'm assuming after so many years and so many releases, it's got to have made money after, what, almost 30 years, right? I mean, it's got to... Possibly. It, this is an interesting film because... It didn't do well at all, obviously, but you do see some blockbusters um, who do really well at the time, but they don't find a lot of love, and then the inverse. And you would think that a movie like this would get multiple and multiple releases. There would be video games based off of it. Just tons of merchandising, right? Yeah. This is one of those films from the 80s, like cult films, that I don't think there's a lot around this thing. There's a couple of comic books that have been made recently. There's actually one that's going to come out August of uh, this year that I think um, the people that were involved in creating Buckaroo Banzai, the character and the concept, are also participating in that as well. But in terms of just general merchandising, there's just not a lot yeah. of stuff around here. I mean, I know like Ready Player One, he dresses up as... There's little references. Yeah, little references there. Um, and we'll get into the legal troubles of trying to make a TV show when you, you maybe don't own the rights. But, That's right. You know. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people who fall in love with this film want to do stuff with it, but I don't think it's really caught on the way that a lot of stuff that John Carpenter did in the 80s, which might have even been subpar, but for whatever reason, you can go out and find multiple editions or Mondo posters and all this other stuff of that particular film. Yeah. This one just seems to fall under the radar even of, um, I don't know, the, the cult movie collectors. Yeah, I, and I, I, so I was talking to my brothers because um, I'm getting ready to see them, and I had said, hey, um, I watched Buckaroo Banzai. Do you remember seeing that movie? And they're both really kind of nerdy when it comes to certain things. And they both really like Rush and the band from Canada. And they said that Buckaroo Banzai and Rush like are about the same thing because they're about the most nerdy things you could like <laughs> see or do or hear. So there's like they were kind of in that lane. And Buckaroo Banzai was like one of the things that they loved a lot. Um, I don't remember seeing it much um, with them, but it was funny that they had kind of said, Hey, we like rush. Therefore we like Buckaroo Banzai. And I was like, you know what? That makes sense. Cause rush is a nerdy band. Buckaroo Banzai is a nerdy movie. So it, it is 100% a nerdy movie. Yes. Yeah. Let's just agree with that. So let's talk about the people behind the camera in front of the camera. Cause I mean, my goodness in front of the camera, holy shit in front of the camera is ridiculous, but even behind the camera, yeah. I totally forgot about one interesting fact. And, and let's start with the director. W.D. Richter, okay? He's only done two films. He did Buckaroo Banzai. So I'm not going to use the full title. Full title, Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across Eight Dimension. From here on out, this movie is referred to as Buckaroo Banzai because that's just a long title. Uh, but Buckaroo Banzai, he does that in 1984. He did Late for Dinner in 1991. Those are the only two films that he directed. I've never seen Late for Dinner. Haven't either. Here's where it gets interesting, though. He really is known for screenwriting. So in 1978, he did the screenplay for The Invasion of the Body Snatchers, so that remake. 
Which is a good remake. It's a fantastic remake. He did the screenplay for the 1979 version of Dracula. He did a 1980 film. He wrote the screenplay for Brubaker, which is a Robert Redford film. I don't know if you've seen that. It's actually really good. I have not. Okay. Oh, wait. Is that a prison movie? Yes. Okay. I okay. have. I have. Now, he does Buckaroo Banzai in 84, so keep that in mind, right? In 86, 20th Century Fox hires him to look at a script and punch it out, and he looks at the script and he goes, this is absolutely, completely awful. And he ends up rewriting, just pretty much rewrote the entire script. Guess what movie it is? I know the answer. Okay, well, what's the answer? It's Big Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China in 1986. So, Which, uh, spoiler alert, is our episode 50. It is. It, 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 and I get to pick the even numbers. That's a big episode for us. And Big Trouble in Little China, full disclosure, is a top five movie of all time, folks. All time. It, it's a litmus test, in, in my opinion. If, they're, if I'm talking with somebody and they are trashing... Big Trouble in Little China, there's just no reason for me to interact with that person at all. I mean, that life's too short, Because that right? person can't have fun. They cannot have fun. But he, he does Big Trouble in Little China in 1986. He was supposed to originally be the only one with a writing credit because he rewrote the whole thing. But the original two screenwriters came back and started working at the Writers Guild of America, and they pretty much determined that the other original two screenwriters... Um, would get the written by credit, and then he would get an adaption credit. Oh, the not Gary Oldman, Gary Oldman, and then ooh, who's the other guy? Yeah, who cares? Yeah. But I mean, really, if if you look at everything that led up to Big Trouble in Little China and the script that they were using originally, and this is just a little preview of episode fifty. I mean, the original screenplay is entirely different to what we ended up getting in nineteen eighty six, and the reason for that is specifically W. D. Richter. Okay, so he gets a pass for you. Oh, right there. Well, absolutely. I yes. mean, we could stop right there and yeah. I can tell you this it's movie's fine. not a bomb, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, 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 folks, you have to listen for however many minutes this is going to go on. But he also, he kind of ruins that in 2005, but. Well, okay. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> well, so before we get to 2005, let's talk about 1993's Needful Things. He was a screenwriter for that. He did Home for the Holidays in 1995, which I know a lot of people love that film, which is sort Jerry of Jerry Foster. Uh, no, the other what's her name, Holly 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 Hunter. Uh, Holly Hunter is it? Broadcast News. She was in it. Ooh. Yeah, Holly Hunter. Holly, Holly Hunter. Hunter. Okay, yes. okay. Um, and 2005's Stealth. So I got to ask you, Brett, do you own a copy of Stealth? I do not own a copy of Stealth. I uh, do not. I I own a copy. Of course of Stealth. you do. Yeah. Because it's a movie that they put out. <laughs> and so you, you have to buy it. Yes, I know. I have a problem. Hey, that movie was a bomb. So, you know. Oh, maybe, we get to review it? Maybe at okay. some point in time. So the screenplay is done by Earl Mac Rauch, I think is how you say his last name. He has done Buckaroo Banzai in the other film, which I found kind of interesting that he wrote, was 1989's Wired. That That is the John Belushi film. Have you ever seen it? I have not seen that movie. So Michael Chiklis... And from The Shield okay. and Fantastic Four, who plays Ben Grimm, plays John Belushi in that film. Okay. Yeah. That's got to be Michael Ch like one of his first movies, right? Yeah, it's early, okay. early Michael Ch So it's based on the, the John Belushi book, Wired, which is extremely controversial at the time it came out because it, it really... Drug. 
it's stuff, yes, right? okay. it really kind of highlights the problems, the addictions he had. But this is such an odd combination. And again, yeah. I would love to spend all of the background in history just talking about how this movie came together between this director and this writer because they were friends. And if you read anything about Earl and just sort of the inception of this idea and how hard it was for him to just get a specific screenplay put together. That story in and of itself should just be a film. But again, I would defer to the Shout Factory yeah, Blu-ray. I wish I, I wish I I was telling you, I have that. Um, I was going to say I recently moved, but it was like three years ago. Yeah, that's but, not recent. But sometimes, you know, you just, you don't unpack things. And so <laughs> no, it's, I hear it's, it. it's, it's around somewhere. So I have to find it. But I... Now I want to see that documentary. You should. I, I'll tell you what. Shout Factory does a heck of a good job. Anytime they put a Blu-ray out, they do a, I mean, a meticulous job of researching all the behind the scenes yep. and sort of digging up all the stories about the making of. And it's just, I got to say, it's one of the best documentaries that Shout Factory put, you know, put together. Even if you're not that fascinated with Buckaroo Banzai, how this movie, I don't know, really was birthed from the director, the screenplay, just all the stories that people were telling that was going on behind the film and even, you know, how the studio reacted to it. It's just fantastic. Yeah. It's very entertaining. Let's uh do a sidebar real quick. Sure. Uh the last action hero 4K that they're releasing in May with the John McTiernan commentary. Yes. I can't wait. Did you pre-book? Oh yes. Okay. Oh, yes. Good. Yes. I, I gotta say, uh, we I think we both agreed that was a bomb. Yes, yes. But I am buying that one oh, because yeah, I can't wait for that commentary. Yeah, I want to hear. Yeah, that, I want to hear McTiernan. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Although I, I would really wish they had recorded a commentary with with Arnold, <laughs> with Arnold back then when he was writing. You know, oh god, his political stance about why <laughs> the film failed. I, I want two hours of that. Yeah, the Democrats. Yeah, so. So, really, that's all I want to talk about in terms of behind the scenes. Yeah, because in front of the camera, it is absolutely stacked. I think it's so interesting. So, I want to start with Peter Weller as our hero, Buckaroo Banzai. Here's something I didn't know. Did you know Peter Weller has a Bachelor of Arts in Theater, a Master of Arts degree in Roman and Renaissance Art, and a PhD in Italian Renaissance Art History? Wow. I knew he was like, you know, there was those lists that are like actors who are really smart. And so I was like, Darth, Darth Lundgren and a bunch of people. Then they always had Peter Weller on there. And I never really kind of looked. But yeah, I guess he's really smart. Just go back and watch any interview with him just recently. And it shows just the way he carries himself when he really goes down the rabbit hole of a particular subject. This dude is flat out brilliant. He ended up in Owensboro, Kentucky for a really small convention at one point. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm listening. So uh, got to meet him just for like the two seconds, you know, the fan yeah. like, oh, it's yeah. Peter Weller there, da, da, da. And he just, how, he's so charismatic in person. And Really? He is. And okay. when you see the interviews, you'll get a hint of that because even as he's talking about something, you're, you're just engrossed. Like I, Peter Weller could read the phone book right now and I'd be like, well, you know what? I might, I might pay eight bucks to see that. Cause I mean, if he did it in the Robocop voice, absolutely. Uh, no, not the Robocop voice, but it's interesting. So Peter Weller to us, you just mentioned it really is kind of known for Robocop. Yep. I think there's a string of films. When I think of Peter Weller, I think of Buckaroo Banzai. I think of Robocop. 
But I also think of Shakedown from 1988 with Sam Elliott, which I I don't know if it bombed or not. I want to find an excuse to okay. to watch that one and talk about it. And then, do you remember kind of in the late 80s when Hollywood was all fascinated with underwater films? So you had Cameron who did The Abyss. The Abyss, yes. Sean Cunningham, uh, director of Friday 13th, did Deep Star 6. Okay, yeah. Which, sidebar, if you want to hear a fantastic review of Deep Star 6, th- this was so good that I went out and bought the Blu-ray of it, just listening to these guys talk about it. you an excuse. Yeah, I did. But uh, Sammy and Todd are, are friends over at the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema a few episodes ago, had covered Deep Star 6, and it, it just, hey, I had to buy it after that. <laughs> but so Peter Weller did, uh, I think, the third film that came out about that year around it, Leviathan. I don't know if you've seen that oh, one. Oh, yes. Yes, I have seen that. I believe that's a big bomb, too. I think so. Yeah. I, like, I feel like I want to talk, we can't talk Robocop. I mean. No, <laughs> we have to do another Peter Weller. So it's yes, gotta be. so we'll probably do Shakedown, Leviathan. But he was pretty much unknown going up into this. Because if you look at the films before 84, he did Shoot the Moon of Unknown Origin in 83. Have you seen that one? I have not. So it's Peter Weller versus a, a, like a killer rat. It's, it's actually really good. Okay. Yeah, you got to check it out. Yes. If, if you want to borrow a copy, I'll send it to you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad you did we talked earlier. You could have just brought it with you. I know. We, we sh- but man, I, I'm glad we watched singles instead of. Yeah. Later though. We might have to watch that Donnie Yen breakdancing movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you did bring that. <laughs> okay. Uh, but it's interesting that they cast him as their lead. And it's somebody that I can't think of anybody else playing Buckaroo Banzai. But again, now, today, Peter Weller, I think, is a very well-known name. It's an, he had some iconic roles, specifically with RoboCop. But I think this is the story of a lot of the people in front of the camera you're going to hear some of these names and go, holy cow, they're in that film? Yeah, but if you think back in 1984, they were not, I don't know, the stars or carried, I don't know, the clout that they do today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if uh, it's weird. Like, if you bring this cast together 10 years ago, <laughs> Buckaroo Bonsai might be one of the biggest movies of all time. I believe you are correct. Yeah. And what's funny is I still think they would have all, I don't know, if they – if they'd seen the screenplay and everything else, they would have signed up for it because that that's the vibe I got from watching the documentary is everybody who got a hold of the screenplay, especially in the production, read it, looked at it, and they said, I don't know what this is. They had no idea what it was about. <laughs> but yet they really, I don't know, just liked what W.D. Richter was presenting in terms of a director. They liked what uh, Earl Mac Rauch was sort of describing um, even though it was a bit all over the place and everybody just immediately signed up to it. So that, that's the vibe you get from watching the documentary. So moving on, we, Peter Weller, you're like, well, that's kind of a big deal, RoboCop, right? You also get John Lithgow as Lord John Warfin, also Dr. Emilio Lazardo. So he starts out as Dr. Emilio Lazardo, and because of an accident, turns into Lord John Warfin. Yes, so, dude, dude. <laughs> yeah, we'll, dude. we'll talk, we'll talk wow. a lot about him, but leading up to this interesting films that he was doing twilight zone, the movie 1983, he was in there. He was doing the airplane sequence. Oh, okay. So the famous Will Shatner one with the gremlin on the wing. So John Lithgow was oh. playing the will. Okay. 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 Terms of endearment, 1983, big hit footloose, 1984, same year as Buckaroo Banzai. 
Now, John Lithgow, he's had just uh, some amazing... I don't know if you ever saw, I think it was the Robin Williams film, The um, the World According to Garp, I think it is what it was. Oh, yeah, I did not see and, that. And I, I think Lithgow at that point was actually nominated for an Academy Award. I, I, I feel like I should research this because I'm... We're going to put this on the internet, and then I might be wrong. I'm not sure. People will tell you if you're wrong, Troy. I know. A lot of people tell me wrong, but that's just going off memory. I feel like he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Supporting Terms of Endearment. Ooh. Oh, no, no, no. World According to Garp, 1982, uh, nominee Best Actor in a Supporting Role. Boom. Wow. There you go. Okay, so it was an early Robin Williams movie. Yes. Have okay. you not seen it? I have not. It's pretty interesting. Okay. I remember my dad taking this to me, and I think I was a, a 10 when I saw it. Didn't quite get it, but I remember seeing it again and going, wow, that was pretty good. And I think a lot of people know John Lithgow from the TV show Third Rock. Yes, Third Rock from the Sun. Yeah. Harry and the Hendersons is probably another thing people know him from. Yeah, he's 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 a big deal, I, mean, I think. Yeah, but yeah. He, what's interesting is after 84, he... He had three films come out in 1984, I think. <laughs> Footloose, which is huge. Huge. Buckaroo Banzai, 2010, the sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, that's right. Have you, You've seen it, yes, right? Yes, Did, I actually kind of dig it. I like yeah, it. I, I think mean, it's a yes. Peter Hyams film. Yep, yep. Yeah. Santa Claus the Movie in 1985. Oh, boy. And uh, I, I wrote this one down because I was curious to, if you've ever seen this. The Manhattan Project in 1986. Yes, yeah, yep. Great little thriller. Yes. So if you haven't checked that out and you like John Lithgow, go, I would say out of all of these, really check out the Manhattan Project because I think that's one that a lot of people haven't seen. Yeah, that's Marshall Brickman, I think I is his name. I think so, yeah. yep. Mm -hmm. Then, moving on, we're not even done yet, you get Ellen Barkin as Penny Pretty. Ellen, uh, I, I re remember her from Buckaroo Banzai and also there's a film, 1989's Johnny Handsome. Have you seen it? With... Mickey Rourke. I have not. Walter Hill film. I have not. We seen are going to review that one. Okay. It's fantastic. But again, not a big name celebrity, not a box office draw in name alone. Because prior year to that, she did Eddie and the Cruisers in 1983, <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai in 84. She does a, a film in 85, Terminal Choice. I have no idea what it is. But the next one she does, it's it's kind of funny. She gets looped into, uh, I don't know, some, uh, some thriller, um, like The Big Easy to... I don't know if you've seen that. I think it's her and I want to say Dennis Quaid. It's a f really good sort of take on a film noir. Yes, yes, and Ned Beatty. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. So Johnny Handsome, 1989, which is absolutely fantastic. And then Sea of Love with Al Pacino in 89 as well. Oh, yeah, Which is yeah. really good that is as good. well. So I, I feel like Ellen Barkin, I don't know, morphed into this femme fatale figure. Yeah. Kind of late 80s going into early 90s. Apparently, she's really good on that show, um, Animal Kingdom. Okay, um, yeah. Yeah, that, I, what station is that on? Is that TB? No, it wasn't TBS. TNT, maybe? TNT, yeah, yeah, one of those. Yeah. Okay, cable network. So, you got Ellen Barkin. Then we also get Jeff Goldblum as New Jersey. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, 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 uh, 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 yeah. He, he, he was in the, uh, the, 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 the big Jill, 1983, yeah. <laughs> the right stuff, 1983, uh, Buckaroo Banzai, 1984, which let's face it, Jeff Goldblum in early eighties wasn't huge. Not until, yeah, not until a couple of big films, but I find his stuff in the eighties super fun. Yeah. Yeah. I just came across a film on Amazon prime I don't know how, you know, you like watch something and it says, if you watch this, you'll like this. I think yeah. I watched like 
I don't know, one of the, like, Enter the Ninja or something like that. And it was like, you might like this movie called, I think it was Vibes? Yeah, with Cindy Lauper. Yeah, yeah, like, and awesome movie. Yeah, it's it just came out on Blu-ray not okay. too long ago. Okay, so, yeah, I was just like, holy crap, like, I had never even heard of that movie. And then, you know, I just stumbled across it, and I was like, oh, this is actually a really cool movie. So. I, th- I think Jeff Goldblum... Within our circle, everybody talks about Jurassic Park or they talk about The Fly. Yeah, yes. But growing up, I liked Jeff Goldblum for Into the Night in 1985, which I think was a John Landis film. It's a lot of fun. Okay. And one of my favorite Westerns, because they weren't doing a ton of Westerns in the 80s. Silverado. Silverado in 85. Yep. And I've, I've sent an email to Josh. So, Josh, if you're listening, our good friend from the VHS files, because they were looking for recommendations. And if you're talking about the VHS, I don't know, store years, one of the movies that I rented consistently was Silverado. So guys, girls, you got to watch Silverado. If, if you're going to have a podcast called The VHS Slick, Files. Slick Calvin or something like that? Yeah, so, yeah. he's... Uh, and that one, talk about a cast. You get Kevin Costner, Brian Dennehy, oh, yeah, that Robert Klein. Yes, I mean, yeah. it's, it's like this cast. It's just <laughs> all over the place. But the other film that I think of Jeff Goldblum was uh, Transylvania 6 5000 from 1985 with Gina Davis. Yeah, that's that's a horror comedy movie for you. That is uh whew. Yeah, and we're not done yet, Brad. <laughs> Just when you think you get Jeff Goldblum, Ellen Bargan, John Lithgow, Peter Weller, we also get Christopher Lloyd as John Big Bootay. Big Bootay. Big Bootay. Big, big Booty. So out of everybody in this cast, he was probably the most established. Yes. Yeah. And it's weird. So for a minute, I was like, wait a minute. They stole a lot of this stuff from Back to the Future. And I was like, wait, no, no, they didn't. They no, did not they steal didn't. anything from Back to the Future because this came out before it. Because I was like, there's a part where there's like a flux capacitor looking thing. Looks like, like it. Wow. And I swear that you can correct me if I'm wrong. Is the number on the side of the truck, is it not 88? No, that's the Buckaroo Banzai signal. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's not 88. It's, it's two Bs. I was, looking for, I was just looking for stuff. You're so, really okay. stretching on yeah, that. Yeah, I was. Okay. But the flux capacitor is there. Okay. It, well, sort of. It looks kind it, of. It looks like it. But yes. yeah, so, but the reason why Christopher Lloyd was established at that time was the TV show Taxi that well, ran from 78 to yes. 83. Yes. And I totally forgot about this. For some reason, I thought it was before, but it came out the same year. Christopher Lloyd was, you know, kind of dipping his toes in science fiction pretty heavy. Star Trek 3. Star Trek 3 as a Klingon. The, uh, uh, the Search for Spock. Search for Spock, okay. Yeah, so does Buckaroo Banzai the same year, and then the following year does the iconic role in uh, Back to the Future. I thought you were going to say Professor Plum. Per, what, that's cl- that's <laughs> later. That was no. the same year. That's 85. That is 85? I think so. Are you sure? Uh, now i got to look up when Clue came out. All right, we're going to... yeah. Fact We're going to put real time fact this checking. on. God, what did we do without the internet outside of just make stuff Blue up? Blue was a 1985 You're American right. black horror oh my gosh. Black comedy mystery film. Boom. Okay. You're right. Okay. okay. So he is known for Clue and a little independent film <laughs> called, called Back, Back to the, the Future. Future. There you go. Thank you. How many sequels did Clue have? Well, okay. So if you got it, it had different endings. So <laughs> that, doesn't okay. that doesn't count. That doesn't count. All right. Um, so going on with the rest of, see, this is why we should not be in the same I know, room. I know. It was also Judge Doom. Judge Doom. Who framed Roger Rabbit? That was in '85. Oh, I know, but it was. Oh, I thought we were moving on to someone else. I no, I thought, okay. okay. That going. one. Okay. Okay. Keep going. Vincent Schiavelli as John O'Connor. 
Here's one that's interesting. Dan Hedaya as John Gomez. That is probably the most hairy man on the face of this earth. Yes. <laughs> and I, I only know him from the uh, television show Cheers as uh, Carla's husband, right? Carl Lumbly as John Parker. Lewis Smith as Perfect Tommy. This is interesting. Clancy Brown yeah, as Rawhide. So Clancy Brown of Highlander fame. There can only be one. There can be only one. Yep. Pepe Serna as Reno, Nevada. Billy Vera, Pinky Crothers. You know who Billy Vera is, right? I don't. We're going to talk about Billy Vera when we talk about the soundtrack here. Okay. Matt Clark as Secretary of Defense. So Matt Clark is one of those character actors that I think just sort of pops up in everything from the 70s and 80s. Okay. So if I say the name Matt Clark, you're just like, who? But when you go and see Matt Clark's face, you're, you're like, like, oh, that guy. That guy that's like in all these films. He's one of those guys. He's, yeah. He's he, that guy. He's always the, I don't know. He's just that guy. Yeah. Okay. You know, that one guy. So, again, we're not going to get into too much of the history for the development because... You, you left off someone. We who? talked about him before the show. Okay. Before we started recording. Go. Jonathan Banks. Who's Mike Jonathan from, Banks? Mike from Breaking Bad. He is a uh, Lizardo hospital guard. He's the hospital... So, he's he the monkey the, boy. He gets choked out. He Yeah. He doesn't last very long. He doesn't. He's I like three he's minutes. he's the first death. Is he? I think so. Okay. Cool. But, but he's the one that John Lithgow calls monkey, monkey boy. boy. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's a good catch there. But that that's the great thing about everybody in front of the camera is if you look at that entire cast of Buckaroo Banzai, the Hong Kong Cavaliers, the the aliens, everybody that participated in this film, I, I think you said it best. Like this would have been a mega box office hit if made today, given their box office clout. Back then, I think Christopher Lloyd was the only one that was really known. Yes, yes. So we have to we have to have this battle. Okay. Dragon Sound. Versus the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Who you got? Uh, I'm going with uh, Hong Kong Cavaliers. Oh, I was going to go Dragon Sound. No, yeah. I mean, so when we talk about the music, we will go in depth about this battle because I think the Hong Kong Cavaliers have a significant edge over Dragon Sound. They can actually play instruments? They can play instruments. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And their drummer has an Uzi. Yes. Okay. Carrying guns. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. I don't forget your ninja stuff. Okay. Yeah. And these guys were packing some pretty big heat, but we we can discuss in detail because before we get to thoughts on the film, one other thing I want to share in terms of sort of leading up to the release of this film. So again, can't can't uh, just talk enough about the documentary that's on the Shop Factory release, but I found this little story interesting. So Fox hired Terry Edmond and a team of publicists, including Blake Mitchell and Jim Ferguson, to promote the film, Buckaroo Banzai, and how they were going to promote it is they were going to go to Star Trek conventions with a few film clips, and they were handing out these free uh, Buckaroo Banzai headbands, which are like this, I don't, if you can find them, awesome, because they go for a lot of money. I this, would love to have one of those. I, I'm sure I, I can make you one. Okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll do arts and crafts later. The studio made no attempts whatsoever to sell the film to a mainstream audience. And again, if you go back and look at some of the documentaries or interviews about the film, it's, it's really because studios didn't know what to do with it. And of course, test audiences really didn't know what they were watching. So they weren't going to do a traditional promotion. Um, but they did have some magazine advertisements. I think Marvel Comics was putting some stuff in there. Obviously, Marvel put the comic book magazine out as well as the two-issue limited the edition. Marvel special, super special number 33, which is what you have. Yes, we'll, we'll post a picture of it um, on our social medias since we're getting better at that. Good job. Right? Okay. Plug in social media. Social medias. Um, 
But here's some fun things about it. So studio publicist Rosemary La Samandra said, quote, nobody knew what to do with Buckaroo Banzai. There was no simple way to tell anyone what it was about. I'm not sure anybody knew. John Lithgow said, quote, I've tried to explain the storyline to people and it takes about an hour. I mean it. It's that complicated, but it's terrific. Every time I tell people about it, I get so excited that I end up saying Buckaroo Bandai. Remember, you heard it here first. So, Brad. That is a perfect summation of yes. Buckaroo Bandai. So, what I want to start with in terms of an exercise is let's summarize the plot because it's one thing that we don't do on Not A Bomb Podcast. If you think about it, it together. anybody <laughs> who listens to this podcast and they see like the title of the film and they go, you know, Children of Men, Coneheads, those are the first couple. We just go right into it bombed, here's why it bombed, here's some math and math. We all know math. Mathy, Mathy. <laughs> yeah, Mathy, Mathy. Uh, then we go, well, we liked it, we didn't like it, and then it's a bomb, et cetera. We at no point even try and talk about the plot, but for this one, I'm accepting the challenge of John Lithgow and saying, it's not going to take an hour. I think we could do it in a matter of minutes. I don't know how many minutes, but it'll be under 60. So let's explain the plot. Okay. Where do we start? With our lead character. Okay, so he is a brain surgeon. Neurosurgeon. Neurosurgeon, yes, right. He's a brain surgeon and rocket scientist. Yes. He is also a, is he a ninja or a samurai? He is probably both. Okay. Okay. And because, a musician. Because yes, samurai ninjas are the same thing. Yes. Okay, yes. And, and he's a musician. Yes. But he builds a rocket car and he crosses over into the eighth dimension. So he, he goes through a mountain. He goes right? through a, <laughs> some pebbles. Okay. <laughs> pebbles. But it's a mountain of pebbles. Yes. Okay. So he lines up some a light. Right. Yep. Now at, at this point, it's all trippy, and we see these floating bodies. We don't know what they are. Yes. But we find out that aliens are trapped in the eighth dimension, because that's, that's what he went through. He went yes. through the eighth dimension in the rocket car. So if you think about it, solid matter is made up of atoms. Don't and... you do science on me, man. Okay. You shut that shit but down right now. But there's space in between atoms. Look, he used the rocket car to yes. go through the mountain, okay. and he's in the eighth dimension. Eighth dimension, yes. And he saw things that were trapped in the eighth dimension. Now, these things that are trapped in the eighth dimension are from planet 10, right? Yes. Okay. Is planet 10 in our solar system? I because don't know. At what point in time we had nine planets? We've been back and forth on Pluto, whether or not it's a planet or not, which... It up up there. Yes, I don't know if solar. <laughs> there's a planet ten. Okay. There's a planet ten. Okay. So he uses the rocket car, goes through the mountain of pebbles, sees aliens that are trapped in the eighth dimension from planet ten. And I know, folks, I'm sorry. There's a lot of numbers already in this description, but stay with me. Uh, take notes. So, but there's other aliens that are trapped on Earth that are not stuck in the eighth dimension, right? Yes. And they're all named John. Yes, and they came in 1938. Which coincides... With the Orson Welles... Radio broadcast. War of the Worlds? War of the Worlds. Okay, yes. Which he was actually broadcasting news, but then they brainwashed... <laughs> to say it was a hoax. To say it was a hoax, okay. Now, there are these aliens... Oh that are trapped on Earth... That, are they the reds or the blacks? Those are the red aliens... The black ones are the good... So we haven't got to the good aliens okay. yet. Yep. So we're still talking about the red aliens. Okay. So the red aliens came here on Halloween 
at the time that Orson Welles was saying, hey, there's aliens here, but then they brainwash Orson Welles' uh, brain, since that's what you do in brainwashing. And now he's like, nope, it's a hoax radio show. But there are some aliens that are trapped in the eight dimension. So I don't know if they got trapped at the time of the radio show. I don't know why some aliens are on Earth and some are in the eight dimension, but that's how it is, folks. Some are running around, some are trapped in the eight dimension. Now, um, they see Buckaroo Banzai go through the mountain and they go, we, we can... It can be done. It, yes, and they are going to get the rocket car and go bust. It's like a prison so why, break movie. why was he able to do the thing? Was the oscillator... The flux over? capacitor. Yes, it's the <laughs> oscillation overthruster. Sounds yes. science-y to me. Yes. I'm going with that. All no, right. That's the device. It's the... It's the I believe you. I didn't believe you about Clue. I'm believing everything you say tonight now, okay? (laughs) So the aliens decide they're going to steal the technology to rescue the imprisoned... Okay, so when I say these aliens, the the red aliens on Earth, not the ones in the 8th dimension, (laughs) the aliens on Earth are going to rescue the aliens in the 8th dimension. How much time? We still got a lot of ways to go. No, no, no. I can wrap this up. Okay. But, okay, there's another group of aliens. These are the black aliens, and they're from Planet 10... They're not stuck on Earth, but they kind of came in this like seashell thing. Yeah, like coral looking thing. They, they're yeah. flying coral in space over Earth, and they see also Buckaroo Banzai going through the mountain. And then they know that these other aliens, the red aliens, want to steal that rocket car to get the other aliens out of the eighth dimension, right? Yes. So the the seashell black aliens in space want to prevent the red aliens from stealing the rocket car so they send one of the aliens to go tell buckaroo bonsai to stop or stop the stop the the thieving yes the the breakout the The thievery thievery, right and if they if buckaroo bonsai doesn't do it then the aliens that are in the seashell in space will attack the russians right well no they're they're going to trick the Russians into yes, thinking we're, we're attacking, attacking them. Which will bring on nuclear fallout. Yes. So we're they're going to basically make the U.S. Yeah. And, and Russia like bomb each other. So it's a big nuclear bomb out and a uh, big nuclear war thing, right? So that's that's the plot of the film. Where's Pretty Penny come in? Oh, sorry. <laughs> totally, yeah. What Back about, up. Okay. In the middle of all of this alien the drama. Blue, the blue blaze, the regular. So, so wait. So, so the reason why Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back up. Good point. The reason why Buckaroo Banzai uh, is able to have a rocket car and brain surgery and ninja and samurai stuff and plays a band is because he is, and I learned this word, and I had to write it down because I didn't know what this word uh, meant. But he's a um, is oh crap! Now I don't po- poly- polymath. No, it's it starts with a P. Uh, po- poly- polymerth. I can't. Oh my gosh! I wrote it down and I don't have my notes. And I was what what are we running on time wise? Are we are we still under an hour? Yeah, we're under an hour, but we're getting up there in time. Where? Uh, yeah, no. Um, he is a polymath. Polymath. Which, okay, we said that 30 seconds ago. Oh, we did? Yes. I wasn't listening. (laughs) So he's a polymath because he can do all this stuff. But he runs this thing that kind of looks like Scientology, but it's not Scientology. And it's the Hong Kong Cavaliers, but they have a a Bonsai Institute. Anyways, the subplot with him is he used to be married to this girl, Peggy. Yes. And 
we don't know what happened. Was he married or? I, he said his wife. Was it his wife? Yeah. Okay. He was either married or seriously like liking her big time. Yeah, they were going steady. They were going steady, but something happened to her. Did she die? Or uh, she run off? I, I think she died. Did she die? Brings her back to life. No, 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 no. Okay. That's, that's later. Yes. No, that's pe- not Peggy, Penny. Okay. He brings, no, Peggy, the first, the, oh, okay. The first, his wife or the girl he was going study with either yes. died or ran off or was kidnapped by aliens. I don't know, but she's not there. And Penny shows up. It's her twin sister, right? And it's her twin sister. And so they end up like falling in love. Is that how it works? Like if there's two of the person and one of them dies, the other one is just betrothed to the other, to that husband. I think uh, it's an unwritten rule. Okay. As a matter I will could real quick. Could anybody who's a twin write into not a bomb pod at gmail.com and let us know what the twin rules are yeah. when one person is married. Should we say married? Yes. And the other one's not, but that person dies. Does the other one have to hook up with the... I think that's... I think that was in the Bible. Okay. All right. You're probably right. Yeah. Um, did I did I get all the plot? Did I miss anything? I, I mean, they're in a band. Did we say that? Well, he's a musician. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They have a band. But that's the plot. You didn't even say anything about John Lithgow. Well, he's one of the red. He's one of the aliens that the, are on. He's the guy. Oh, oh, yeah. He he was making his own flux capacitor. Yeah, but he. But he. Uh, okay, so the point is this: this movie is all over the place. It's got a lot of a lot of things going on. <laughs> so the I kind of agree. It would it to to thoroughly do this movie justice and discuss the plot may actually take an hour. So we have, we have a choice here. We can go back and try again. No, and we, get can, a, we can move on. We can move on? We okay. We can move on. So uh, what what was it like revisiting Buckaroo Banzai again, Brad? <laughs> wow. What was it like? Uh, it was weird. I know, right? Seeing Buckaroo Banzai again is weird. Uh, there's just so much stuff going on in this movie that I kind of had forgotten just how many plot lines and ideas that they just kind of throw at the wall. And it's just, and then you have John Lithgow. You have John Lithgow (laughs) who is literally just gnawing on every scene that he's in, just chewing it up. And it's amazing. And Peter Weller as your like charismatic lead, but I don't find it very charismatic. It's just oh weird. hush, that's he's, blasphemy. He's not uh, whatever. He played a robot perfectly because he has no charisma. Oh so, my god, you shut your mouth. I'm just saying, shut it but, right now. So, Buckaroo Banzai is a is a weird movie. Like that is weird to yeah. the point where it's it's almost difficult to kind of put into words because. The first 20 minutes of it is actually like a really cool setup. And what I noticed this time when I was going back is you don't see Peter Weller, his face, I don't think, until like the end of the car ride, until he's done. And then it's kind of like... You you get glimpses of it within the surgery. Yeah, but he's still wearing the thing. And then you don't get it until he's like singing and he's like spinning around and it's like... Kind of a cool reveal. Um, it's, it's almost hard to describe 
when I watched this movie because I was shocked is not like the term I would use, but just kind of, it's like, I have never seen a movie that I have, know I've seen multiple times. And I literally remembered nothing until <laughs> I saw it this time. And I was like, wait a minute, what is going on in this movie? So yeah, I, I, you, you bring up the first 15, 20 minutes. I, I think that's a good place to start. I don't know about you, but I feel like this is one of those films I could confidently say you could watch the first 20 minutes and just know if you should turn it off or just go along with it. Yeah. Yes, because there's some things they do in that car and you're like, wait a minute. Cause yeah. It, it, so you get the, it starts with an introduction. So you get some word crawling, right? And it gives you the background, Buckaroo Banzai, Hong Kong Cavaliers, which is not how the movie was supposed to start. Well, yeah, you have to give some sort of context of who this person is. So wait, his mother was white or she Asian? I believe she was white in... Father was... Nope, I don't think his father... So if you go back and look at the deleted scenes, I, I can't exactly remember, but there was a whole sequence that they shot where Jamie Lee Curtis yes. um, actually plays Buckaroo's mother. Now, again, if you happen to get your... Uh, pretty little hands on that shop factory um, blu-ray and i think it's even on the internet i'm sure you can go back and watch the original intro and even within the comics the very first page gives this background story of what happens to buckaroo's father but the movie just throws you right into it it, it gives you a little bit of a description of what buckaroo bonsai is and the hong kong cavaliers but then you get buckaroo doing brain surgery and rocket science he's Polymath, that's my new, that's my new word, right? <laughs> so individual yes. whose knowledge spans a substantial number of subjects. Oh shit, I found my notes. There it is. There you go. <laughs> um, and he then goes through a mountain and you see floating alien bodies in sort of this 80s light show, like it's, you know, glamour shots come to life, right? I have the opening scroll if you want it. Okay. Um, well, yeah, what is it? You want to read that? Buckaroo Banzai, born to an American woman and a Japanese father. Okay. Thus begins life as he was destined to live it, going in several directions at once. So that is this movie. <laughs> it's exactly this film. Yeah. several directions at once. Uh, a brilliant neurosurgeon, this restless young man grew quickly dissatisfied with a life devoted solely to medicine. He roamed the planet studying martial arts and particle physics, collecting around him a most eclectic group of friends, those hard-rocking scientists the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, when it says in multiple directions, that is this movie. Yeah. And so you, you get that description. You get the rocket car going through the mountain. You get the, the 80s trippy light show with some bodies floating around. Yeah. Then you get John Lithgow and his teeth. Oh, And my that gosh. whole performance, right? Yes. And at this point, again. So he's like playing Russian? Italian. He's Italian. Oh, yes. That's yeah, right. he's okay. Italian. Okay. And, and I, I would say at that point, you could either stop and go, not for me. I'm tapping out right now. And I, I would, hey, look, I, I'd be like, yeah. It's it, weird. It's weird. If you're not into it at this point, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, exponentially weirder <laughs> as you go. Yeah, so in those first 15 or 20 minutes. That's the most straightforward thing that happens in this movie. That's, you know what? You're right. It is. Because at that point you go, I am following up to a point where he went through a mountain, saw aliens, and some dude just uh, with bad teeth is shocking himself. Mike the Cleaner's dead. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. 
but after after those first 15 minutes the first thought that came to my mind was the 80s to me were not afraid to just throw every genre into a film and see what happens yeah and i think i miss things like that where they just bring in like this amalgamation of like genres yeah and i know we joked earlier that we said oh you make this movie 10 years ago you know it's a hit there's no way in hell they make this movie after 1985. Like, this movie is so needed to be 1984, because if not, it wasn't going to get made. Because after that, it was just like this weirdness. I, don't, I mean, things in the 80s were weird, because cocaine's a hell of a drug. But this is such a time and place that there's no way, like, this is not getting made in the 90s. It's not getting made in the aughts. It's not, you know, it's just... It's not getting made today. Yeah, exactly. They don't do stuff like this. Um, and it's kind of nice seeing something that is so weird. But, again, we've talked about it in previous episodes. They were going for it. Oh, like, totally going for it. They wanted this to be a serious, like, science fiction film with, you know, a little bit of comedy. More than a little bit. With some comedy. But, like, they were going out to make the Star Wars of guy who's a neurosurgeon born to American mother, Japanese father. Like, they were going for it. I, well, see, but even that statement, I think, is wrong. They weren't going out to make Star Wars. I think they were going out to make something. Well, the something... serials from, like, the 30s. Yeah, I, I, I think it had a serial feel to it. But I, I find it was just, hey, we like horror, we like science fiction, we like action, we like music. Here are all the things that we like, and let's jam them in there. And the other thing I thought about was America wasn't the only one that was kind of going through this. And I know you've seen this film, Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain, Troy yes. Hark's film from 1983. Yes, yes. Same kind of thing. Yeah. It, it's very, um, it, it's got wuxia in it. Very martial arts heavy. It's special effects. I mean, it it's out there just as much as uh, to me, Buckaroo Banzai is, or Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. But that is the thing that I miss. And what's weird is I I feel like some of these films were experiments in pop culture, and they and they one hundred percent, in my opinion, impacted every genre that's out there. It imp- it impacted science fiction. Horror action films, you see it. You just you just mentioned one. Ready Player One has a callback to Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah, yeah. And and I even think Ready Player One tries to do a little bit of that by you know kind of creating this video game architecture and bring all these references into it. Yes. <laughs> but the difference is, this film was taking all those genres and trying to tell a narrative by using those genres. Versus, I think movies try to be Buckaroo Banzai. But it just becomes self-referential, like pop culture references. Yeah. We have a ton of films that reference pop culture, but nothing like Buckaroo Banzai that goes, we are going to tell you an action, science fiction, romantic, comedy, horror, musical, rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hitting all of those beats, and it's not trying to reference anything. It's trying to create... Even within the costume, well, it's trying it's, to reference the genres. It's trying to reference the genres, but create something new within each genre. Yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah. And, and I know we we I joked about it earlier and said, did you know that you know Back to the Future came out after this? And like, you look at it as like, did this movie influence some of the choices they made in Back to the Future and some of that stuff? And you're like, 
Maybe. I mean, Christopher Lloyd is like, is kind of weird and like a weird scientist in that, you know, when he goes back to 1954, right? 1954. But, you know, it's, it's like, maybe. But then you're like, well, Buckaroo, like no one saw Buckaroo Bonsai. <laughs> Nobody so it, did. It couldn't have yeah. been that big of an influence. Well, but maybe that's not was. true. I, I think people saw it. It's, a select it's, number of a, people. Yeah, and it, it had a cult following, I think, out of the gate because people were doing uh, what Buckaroo Bonsai or Bonsai Institute uh, newsletters and fanzines where they were making them off Xerox copies and mailing them out to people. Wow. I, I mean, there was a dedicated I'm fan sure group as soon as somebody got a hold of this. But this movie is not for everybody. I, I feel like it is made for people who – it's – it's not as crazy and out there as sort of a David Lynch film, but I, I think it is a challenging narrative and it forces you to really pay attention yeah, to what's is, going this movie's on. It's almost made for nobody in a way. It's I, closer to made to nobody than it is for everybody. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's made for nobody. I think it's, it, I think it's specifically trying to take every genre and try and put it in sort of uh, this artistic collaborative image. Yeah. And, yeah. and, I, I feel kind of like Speed Racer, where we talked about Speed Racer, and I think the Wachowskis were really trying to challenge the narrative with some of the choices that they made within Speed Racer. I, I think this is exactly doing that. I think Richter is is 100% knows exactly what he's making, and he's trying to challenge the viewer yeah. with, with the screenplay. And I, I think he does a better job than the Wachowskis did in Speed Racer just because there's so much. Speed Racer still has um, referential pop culture stuff within it. Yes, and it's the property is it's kind of it's, tied to that property. It's tied too. to that property, yeah. whereas this is its own thing. But <laughs> let's let's talk about the. I didn't expect you to bring up Speed Racer, so I'm a little bit like flummoxed. But that's all right. Oh, okay. Well, but I, we keep talking about some of the performances. I I do want to have this debate about Peter Weller because you think he's robotic. I I think he sort of exudes cool. Hey, is someone out there crying? Yeah, we're, someone out there crying. Cry. Hey, be nice. Hey, Don't be mean. Hey, yeah. get him a mic and put a spotlight on him <laughs> so we can all laugh at him. <laughs> well, I'll I'll say this. I like Perfect Tommy more than Buckaroo. Yes, Perfect Tommy is way better than, yes. Well, he's not way better. I just think he's he's the best partner for Buckaroo. I mean, that ensemble cast is fantastic. The way they just riff off of each other is great. Yeah. But I, I can't imagine anybody else's Buckaroo Bonsai except Peter Weller. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard, obviously. Because, yeah, I mean, if someone else played RoboCop, it'd be hard to be like, ah, it's hard to see someone else playing RoboCop. But- well, I, I'll tell you what, there's one person. So here's the other thing that struck me. And every time I watch this film, I kind of, I, I have to go back and remember, okay, the director of this film went and pretty much wrote Big Trouble in Little, Little China, China, right? Yes. Buckaroo Banzai, to me, has the early beginnings of a Jack Burton character. The big difference is Buckaroo Banzai can do everything that he talks about and he says and he has his confidence yeah, and everything he's else. Superman. He he's super math science genius like cowboy man, right? Yeah. I mean he can do everything. And both of them kind of pick up and say Jack Burton's had adventures before you've seen this. Buckaroo Banzai's had had many adventures. We're just coming in to this actual adventure right here. And next time there'll be a different adventure. Um, both just kind of throw you into the situation. Yes, but I think Jack Burton wants to be Buckaroo Banzai and can't. Yes. <laughs> and Buckaroo Banzai is is just doing everything perfectly. Yeah. Okay. 
which I find interesting. Like to me, if if you really want to have a fun double bill, it would be this film in Big Trouble in Little China. And I think I think if you look at that Jack Burton character and Buckaroo Banzai, you can kind of go, oh, I I think there is one person that had a hand in both of these films. And you can see you elements can, yes, you can of those characters. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, and John Lithgow, I mean, my goodness. Give this man an Academy <laughs> Award for this. Such an amazing performance. Like, there's not a good, perf- you can't compare it to anything. It is batshit. Like, it, it, but it's so great. Like, he's doing such a great job. And I love every second of it. And when he's not on the screen, I'm like, where's John Lithgow? I want to see John Lithgow. <laughs> it is so good and so fun. And I, I wish some of the other characters were having as much fun. Like the woman, uh, Penny is, okay, Penny is a problem in this movie. I don't think she has much to do. She she is the damsel. And if you look up damsel in distress in the dictionary. <laughs> You're going to see Ellen Bargain's picture. Her. Yeah. You know, because A, the first time we see her, she's crying. She's got like the smeared mascara. You know, why does she still have tags on the gun? She just, I don't know, she just bought it. <laughs> she, she was going to kill herself and then return the well, gun. Well, hold on. Have you ever, like, bought a pair of jeans and you still have that sticker on the side of it where it has, like, your pant size yeah, and everybody sees sure your pant size fit. on it? They want to make sure they fit. Yeah, but you've home. never gone out in public and, and, like, your wife was like, oh, let me take that sticker off. That's happened to me several no, times. Because I know that, no, because I okay. know that it's on there, so let's take it off. But, I mean, she was going to kill herself and then return the gun and get her money back. That doesn't add up. Well, she probably forgot to take time. Look, anyways, go back to John Lithgow. So <laughs> before we talk about the pro- some of the problem performances, but somebody described his performance, I thought this was interesting, as Mussolini and Bozo the Clown mixed together. So when I hear that, I go, yeah, that kind of scratches the surface. Yeah, but you're not even... You're not even close. Yeah, then you have to like turn up the crazy and the teeth. Oh my God, the teeth. Well, it's not just the teeth. It's the red hair. Yes. It's the jacket that he's wearing with all these medals on, which you don't know why he has all these war medals. And he's got multiple layers of clothes on him as well. Like he's, he's just And when he says monkey boy, I love every minute of that. Oh, yeah. It's, (laughs) it's, he spoke, what's weird is he, he gets credited with two roles, which is the Italian scientist and then the red, they're lectoids, I think, red lectoid aliens. Yeah. And what's amazing is... I almost Lord Farquaad. No, it, it's <laughs> Lord whatever it is. Yeah. So you you see it, and I, I understand why they put both characters next to his name, because he is both characters in the film. He is both the Italian scientist, and he's this alien guy. He's not an alien that took over this Italian scientist. I mean, he is playing both, both characters them. at the same time. It is... It is a sight to see. How does he not win an Academy? That is why I think the Academy Awards are total bullshit because nobody looked at this performance and went, wow, that is the most memorable. Who won Best Actor of that year? It wasn't John Lithgow, so who cares? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, Could you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) And the 73rd Academy Award goes to... John Lithgow. <laughs> thank you, monkey boys. Yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny you bring up Ellen Barger. I, I kind of agree. I, I don't think there's enough for her to do. I would almost say the same about Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, he's, in, in retrospect, it's like he's wasted. Because this is, again, 1984. This isn't the Jeff Goldblum, Goldblum that we know today. You know, this isn't, you know, Jurassic Park. So 
you know, looking back, you're like, oh, cool, Jeff Goldblum. Oh, he's just going to wear a cowboy outfit and hang out for a little bit. But he he, he sells it. Yeah. He shows up in that cowboy outfit. Yeah. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and and he drops the, I don't know, was it the woolly chaps or whatever in the 10-gallon hat? He's yes. still wearing the red shirt. And you totally buy into it. I would say everybody in terms of their performance, even you know, say what you will about Jeff Goldblum, Ellen Bargain, they are 100% committed to the roles that they give, even though I don't think they're given enough. Oh, absolutely. I think if you don't have the people in this movie buying into what they're doing, then you could see right through it. Like, you have to have the people in front of the camera believing all this crazy stuff going on, because if not... You can see right through it. Yeah, every five minutes, it ups, I don't know, the ante in terms of craziness. Yes. And there's so much stuff going on. And no matter how crazy things get, you totally believe it because everybody is believing it on screen. So they're they're totally committed. They're, yeah. And what I like about this film, it's not tongue-in-cheek. No, it's, go- it's earnest. It's, it's so earnest. The other person I want to talk about, um, because I, I love Perfect Tongue. I, I, that character is so much fun. I love... He here's the difference. I don't think him and Jeff Goldblum. Um, how do I say this? If you were to sit back and count all their lines, I think it'd be pretty close to him. I think Perfect Tommy still has more lines than Jeff Goldblum, but what Perfect Tommy brings in terms of his chemistry with the Buckaroo Banzai character, I th- I think really works, and it makes a, a fantastic balancing act. And his name is Perfect Tommy. <laughs> and his name is Perfect Tommy. I, I don't know. I, I I really I really like that character. I like what um, Clancy Brown does with Rawhide. He just has a presence. Yeah. I don't know if it's his voice. I mean, even in the beginning when uh, Buckaroo's doing the surgery and he's given the play by play, just he oh, okay. he com- he just commands the screen with that voice and that presence. But yeah, I mean, I I loved everybody in this. The um, the person I really kind of want to highlight is as good as John. Lithgow is Christopher Lloyd is casually stealing every scene in the background. That is true. Yes. What I love when John Lithgow is giving that speech and you're you're dying because he's like, you know, where are we going? Planet 10. When? Real soon. I mean, you're you're <laughs> cracking up at that. But you've got Christopher Lloyd in the sound booth just going nuts. Like if he has to hear this speech one more time and he's, he's gonna go crazy. Yeah, he's tearing at that cable yeah. <laughs> and is ready to yes. just yank it from John Lithgow. And then the other thing which I I laugh so hard every time I see it. And then when you watch the documentary you find out it's improvised, but it's when Christopher Lloyd is flipping off John Lithgow. Oh yes. Okay. That got a hearty laugh out of me. Yeah, totally improvised. And so John Lithgow uh one of the favorite parts of the documentary, John Lithgow is talking about this scene. He goes, Christopher Lloyd totally improvises that. And he goes, John Lithgow says, I never broke character except for that scene. <laughs> and if you go back and watch it, oh, no, okay, no, John no. Lithgow is turning and you can start to see him smiling and trying to hide okay, a laugh. I have to, we'll have to go back and watch that. Yeah, I it is see that now. absolutely hilarious. But Christopher Lloyd, even when he's going through uh, Ellen Barkin's makeup bag with the, I mean, He's doing all these small things, and it's just Christopher Lloyd being Christopher Lloyd. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's so good, and it's like the the like kind of the like genesis of Doc Brown in a way. A little bit, yeah. yeah. It has that quirky, yeah. subtle comedy. Yeah, exactly. That's all throughout it. Yeah. 
Um, and I know when we were talking uh, last week, Yakov Smirnov came up at the beginning when we were trying to pawn off our Russian accents oh, yes, for Man for yes. Uncle. And then Yakov Smirnov shows up yes. as the national security advisor. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's funny. That is funny. Um, can we talk about the soundtrack? Yeah, let's talk about the soundtrack. What do you think of the soundtrack? You know, really? I kind of almost, it seemed like there was a lot of quiet time in this movie. Where, like, there was just a little hint of music, but nothing. I was waiting for, like, that 80s, like, power ballad to kick me in the face. And it never really does. I think it's, the music's there, but it, you're right. It's super subtle. But I find it to be unique and have a punchy sound, especially that Buckaroo Banzai theme song. Yeah. And I think once you hear it, especially when you get to the end credit scene, uh-huh. and they're walking Did through... <laughs> Kind Which, of like the Anchorman sort of thing. It was weird. It was so weird. do you know what song they were actually, uh, I guess... Going di- to use? Yeah, dance. Well, the song, when, they're, when they're walking through and doing that end credit scene, they're all in sync. They're doing this little choreography. That, do you know the song that they were listening to that was blaring out that they were doing it to? I don't. I don't. Billy Joel's Uptown Girl. Oh, which I love. <laughs> it's like a terrible song. So that's what, that song. They're, that's what they're listening to and dancing to. And then the composer comes back and kind of puts that buckaroo theme in there. Okay. And I it has that same sort of punchy quality beat that Uptown Girl has. And and I I feel like to your point, the soundtrack is subtle. It has its quiet moments. It doesn't hit you over the head. No, not at all. But let's let's have this band debate. You're still in, you know, Miami Connection world. Yeah. <sighs> Dude, I- Buckaroo not only can play the guitar, but he can play a trumpet. Yeah. I think I saw a guy playing two saxophones at the same time. Yes. Okay. He was, and he's part of the Beaters, Billy Vera and the Beaters. Do you know that band? I don't. Okay. So Billy Vera and the Beaters, he plays uh, Pinky Carruthers in okay. Buckaroo Banzai. Yes, yes. Okay. So the guy playing two the two saxophones is actually um, in uh, the band, Billy Vera and the Beaters. You might know this. So in 1987, Billy Vera had a big hit. It was number one hit called At This Moment. At this moment. Would you give it this moment? Okay, how about this? Um, And he won a Grammy in 2013, but I don't know if you ever saw the movie Blind Date with Bruce Willis. and. um, Yes. Okay, the band that's prominently in Uh that is uh, Billy Vera and the Beaters. Gotcha. Okay. Okay, I gotcha. gotcha. So Billy Vera, (laughs) he's got some good rhythm for a white guy, okay? When you go listen to it, he's got some soulful music out there, okay? (laughs) He's he's good. he, yes, he's a bit 80s yacht rock. And I'll, I'll yeah, say this, the say, Hong Kong Cavaliers have, have their 80s yacht rock with some edge to it. Okay. But do they have a song called Against the Ninja? Okay. Content-wise, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you Dragon Force. Dragon Sound. Dragon Sound. See, and I didn't even know that person. I know, I know Hong Kong Cavaliers. Friends. That's, friends. Yeah. But who has, a, who has a catchier name? Hong Kong Cavaliers or Dragon Sound? Uh, I don't know. Or Force. It's Dragon Sound. <laughs> I mean, Hong Kong Cavaliers is pretty good. Okay. I'll get... Two sa- oh, guy who plays two saxophones. I know, the guy does play two saxophones. You got edgy yacht rock. <laughs> can you have edgy yacht rock? Edgy yacht rock. And they're all packing some heavy weapons. Okay, the weapons... All right, so you're saying in your book, gun over sword? 
uh, I I think real life has proven that out. <laughs> but, but we're not. We, have we not seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay. Yes. Okay. Right. Yeah. What? Here's the other thing. So the drummer that whips out the Uzi. Yes. Is actually not in the band. Did you notice that? Oh yeah. <laughs> now that you say that, yes. Yeah, he's he's playing drums for the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Whips out an Uzi. But he's actually not in the Hong Kong Cavaliers. So apparently, when Hong Kong Cavaliers are traveling city to city and they subcontract they to, out, they have to contract out. The, you have to contract out not only a drummer, but a drummer who is packing an Uzi. Willing to pack an Uzi. Okay. Yeah. Now that that is a wrinkle I did not factor into my decision on whether they're better than Dragon Sound, and maybe that you know. What you gonna you gonna give it to Hong Kong Cavaliers? Yeah, let's give it to Hong Kong Cavaliers. All right. I like winning. Yeah. <laughs> sure you can say that um there there's a i don't know about you so there's a point in the film where i stopped taking notes yeah mine was after like the first 15 minutes i'm gonna promise you because i was like writing some stuff down and then i was like you know what no this isn't even gonna because a i felt every time i was writing something i had to pause it and look down to write and then i'm like wait a minute what's going on and then i kind of went back and i'm like I don't even know what this note means. Like, what does this even mean? What does a pile of pebbles even mean? And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's the mountain. But, yeah. It, it was, I'll, I'll tell this. Uh, I would say for maybe, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll talk about the point. So there's a point in the movie where I just stopped analyzing the film. Can I guess what it is? Yes, you can guess. Is it the giant ball? The giant ball? Yeah. Where the, the Rastafarian comes out of the giant ball where the two rednecks are hunting. Nope, I was still critiquing the film wow, at okay. that point. Okay. And and that's the thing. When you get through the first fifteen or twenty minutes. The film. I was. Shut up. <laughs> no, I am. I'm looking at this thing. Because here's here's the thing. Full disclosure. This film, like we talked about, I, I mean, I grew up on it, and it was one of those that I just wanted to watch over and over again. Um, and it definitely was a film that when I would try and talk to other kids my age. And they knew no idea what I was talking about. It's like, okay, well, we don't have a lot of the same interests, right? So uh, that's probably why I just had Don't one. have friends? <laughs> I didn't have friends growing up. I had one friend. Um, grow, and, and Perfect Tommy. Was- yeah, so my best friend was the perfect Tommy, right? So the uh, – and, and full disclosure, the guy who picked this film was the guy, Kev. Aww. Yeah, so – uh, I thought it was funny because I, I wanted to pick Buckaroo Banzai, but I wasn't going to pick the film, and I thought it was funny you picked it. And I'm like, awesome. Well, this is the film Kevin and I grew up on. And uh, it's probably why it was just him and I growing up <laughs> because we love this film. Yeah, here we go. But I, I don't know how you come across some films that you grew up on, I especially when you kind of talk about it on a podcast. You mean like Solar Babies? Like Solar Babies. You're trying to put on your critical hat, and yeah. you go, look. You don't want to get on, you know, a microphone and just talk about how cool this film is. You you want to look at it as fresh as possible and from a critical perspective and just say, you know, take the performances, take the special effects. Is the editing working? I mean, I think a film like this, it it can be edited very poorly. Like some scenes can go on too long. And I think that's super important for something that is wacky and zany as this. And it almost has to, I don't know, flow like a Billy Joel song, Uptown Girl, right? <laughs> so if if you miss a beat in Uptown Girl, then all of a sudden 
that's that rhythm just messes you up and you're not humming it anymore. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going on this walk with you. You're going on this walk. So I feel like Buckaroo Banzai, there's so many points where I'm watching it over, especially from a critical perspective and just saying, this thing's going to misstep. This thing's going to just go out of sync. And all of a sudden it's going to turn into like a horrible Billy Joel song. It's not going to be as catchy as Uptown Girl. I'm glad we agree on Uptown Girl, by the way. Yes, I, I mean, so I'm humming along, and I'm like, okay, got to be critical. I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for something to just throw it off and go, you know, this is a pretty good film. I'm heavily influenced by nostalgia, but there's going to be something about it, and I'm, I'm, I'm just watching it hard, right? And I go, okay, this is the point where it just doesn't work, and because of this, it, you know, it's a good film, but, you know, you shouldn't be paying $100 for the Blu-ray because it's out of print, et cetera. Uh-huh. But there's a point in the film where I just had to stop analyzing it. And I went, dude, there is nothing wrong with this film. (laughs) Nothing wrong. Okay. Well, and only only because I can't divorce myself from my love of it. So is it the goggle sequence? No. When they put on the uh... Um It's (laughs) it's the watermelon. Oh, where he just says, Hey, what's that watermelon? He goes, Hey, what's that watermelon? He's like, Oh, I I don't have time to explain it to you. And at that point I'm I'm like, what huh? They did you do any research on like what the watermelon was for? I did. <laughs> I couldn't find anything. I, okay, so it's it's well, it's in the Blu-ray that's hidden in your oh, basement somewhere. Okay. So what's funny is you get to that watermelon scene, and the fact that, and I thought that was going to be the scene where Uptown Girl missed its beat because they walk into that room, and for a second, Jeff Goldblum goes, "What's that watermelon for?" And I. I can't uh, remember. Uh, what's that? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, what, what, what's a watermelon for? And and uh, was it Reno was with him? I think so. I got to go back and look. Uh, I, I think it was Reno was with him. And as they're walking through, he just, he kind of looks at Jeff Goldblum. He's like, I, I don't have time to explain it. Because it, it looks like this watermelon's in this crushing Yeah, it's like thing. one of those, uh, like, uh, uh, hydraulic presses. Yeah, it, it looks like they're doing an experiment on yeah. a watermelon. It's like that YouTube channel. What? There's a YouTube channel where all they do is put stuff in a hydraulic press. It, Come on, Dad. That's all they do? Yes. And it's like people get this weird satisfaction from it. I mean, you know, it's funny to watch the stuff get crushed. Okay. All right. <laughs> I bet the same people who are into tall women are into that, you know. So. Man, the internet's weird. Okay. So in, that was the point where I just put everything down and went, yeah, I'm just going to bask in the awesomeness of this film. But the story goes with the watermelon. Richter and the producer, they were struggling with the studio. So originally, one of the cinematographers was actually a cinematographer of Blade Runner. And then they fired him and brought somebody else on. So the st- Imagine firing someone who worked on Blade Runner. Well, yeah. Well, you got to keep in mind, Blade Runner was a bomb. I know, I yeah. know, I know. And, and they were afraid the guy was shooting it too dark. He was Because the question was, is he going to shoot it like Blade Runner? And, of course, Richter's like, well, no, not at all. And he's like, okay, you can hire him. But as, as they're looking at the film and everything else, he's like, nope, don't want this guy. So they bring another guy in. So they're going back and forth to the studio. And the only reason why the studio greenlit this film to begin with is because they thought um, it was going to be another Raiders of the Lost Ark. So... You know, obviously the director and the screenwriter, yeah. everybody's looking at it going, where are you getting Raiders? Of, well, you know what? If you think it's yeah, sure, awesome, sure. give yeah. us money. We're going to, we're going to do this. $17 million. Yeah. Thank you. So, and, and they're asking everybody to be in this film. Everybody reads a screenplay and goes, we have no idea what this is, but we like you and you are on this like unique journey. So we're going to go with it. 
So they're getting back and forth uh, with the studio, but at some point they they kind of think that the studio's not like gave up on them. Is like, don't care. They're going to pull the plug any minute. <laughs> so as they're going to work one day, and I think they were going to shoot something in the warehouse sequence. And a lot going, of warehouses and a lot of like office spaces. Yeah, in Los Angeles, Angeles or whatever. Yeah. So they see a guy with a pickup truck full of watermelon selling it at the side of the road. So they go and they buy like 30 or 40 watermelons and they go, well, let's see if the studio is actually paying attention. So they were going to just put watermelons all over this scene. But they couldn't figure out how to do it. Like, it would mess everything up. So they put that, that a sequence together and said, well, let's just take one watermelon and build a scene out of it and put it in there. And these guys come through, and Jeff Goldblum asks about the watermelon to go, don't worry about it. It's a long story. we have to explain it later and go on. And it was a test to see if the studio would go... Why is the watermelon... So watching like the test footage, the dailies. Yeah, the dailies. You go back and look at the dailies. Okay. So they film that sequence and they turn it into the studio and the studio comes... Studio doesn't say anything. And so at that point they go, dude, they're not even paying attention. Let's just... We got full creative freedom here and they just kept going with it. Because again, they're fighting... It's like when back. your boss is on PTO. Exactly. <laughs> and you're like, you know what? I'm making decisions now. So the uh, that that's the watermelon sequence. But that that's the part of the film this time... Because usually when I put this thing off, I'm just in it. Like I'm, I am 100% just ready to go with the Hong Kong Cavaliers. I love everything about this film, but this time I'm I'm really pushing hard, looking for something. And then when that watermelon sequence comes back, I'm I'm back to being like 12, 13 years old, just loving this film. Yeah. So you have a lot of nostalgia for this movie, then, right? I mean. I, I do. Again, you you have a friendship almost based on Buckaroo Banzai. Well, not just based know, on it, but it's a... Kevin's a nice guy, but it's Buckaroo Banzai, let's say. Well, and, and I guess the other revelation is that if if the Banzai Institute is, is like Scientology, if it's like a cool version of Scientology, because, I mean, the Banzai Institute has aliens from Planet 10, right? Yeah. Um, I, I'd probably be a Scientologist if Scientology was as cool as the Bonsai Institute. <laughs> so is 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 Buckaroo Bonsai like the Tom Cruise of I me? Mean, he would have to be, right? I, I guess. Like I said, if, if somebody came out and was like, look, this is what Scientology is like, but you just got to play an instrument. Now, the instrument thing I might struggle with. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't know. Can you play the recorder at all? No. I could play it. I mean, triangle. The triangle? I could yeah, do a triangle. triangle. Um, so I could probably Maybe do a that. cowbell? Oh, I, I could rock a cowbell. Okay. Yeah. So I, I guess if Scientology was like the Bonsai Institute, I'd sign up for it. I don't know about you. Because they've got people waiting outside the Bonsai Institute to try and get in and yeah. stuff, right? So explain to me this. Yeah. The Blue Blazer Reserve? What what are, what were those people called? Oh, yeah. They're they're like little militia army. Yeah. Again, like Scientology. The kid with the, with the AK-47. Wasn't that cool? Sure. Again, okay. if Scientology were handing kids AK-47s, I would sign up. Okay. Okay. The Blue Blazer Brigade? Something like that? Yeah, irreg- irregular? I don't know. I forget now. now how, did, how did they sign up for that? And then the dad was in it, and he had a helicopter, right? He had a right? helicopter. Did, did he have a junkyard and a helicopter? I don't know. Or an auto service and a helicopter? Both. Okay. Anyways... That was my realization. Is I'm tr- like I'm kind of worried about myself, Brad. I'm, I feel like if I'm, a cult I'm, comes along and is as cool as the Bonsai you're Institute, in my house, so I'm a little concerned. I would probably sign up for it. I think I'm that gullible. Mm. 
Can we talk about something that you're probably not going to be too happy to talk about? Um, well, we're talking about Buckaroo Banzai, so I'm pretty Can happy. Can we talk about the racism that's in this movie? <laughs> well, okay. Yeah, all right. Look. Holy it, Toledo. Like, the Asian guy was like, oh, boy. What do you and mean then, the Asian guy? There's just, see, I don't know. Just, but it's, it's the black, it's the black guys. Are stuff. they, but they're the good guys. Yeah. Are, yes, I know. It's just, it's just weird, man. It's just weird. Explain. I, I was just uncomfortable with the whole thing. It was like these aliens had to turn into black guys who were like Rastafarians for some reason. And it was, it, it screamed too much Jar Jar Binks for my liking. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't get that. I, I, I kind of feel in, in this particular case, you could go back to 84 and if you're saying okay, in, in in the in the grand scheme of 1980s, this is very nice to Asian people in comparison to uh, well, in, in uh, the grand thing, in the grand scheme of the 80s, it's pretty progressive. Yes, because you're basically saying aliens are trying to blend in with humans, and especially the the good guys. And if you think about it, the bad red lectoid aliens are these white scientists. Yes, all named John. All named John, right? So those are the bad John aliens. Smallberries. <laughs> John Smallberries. Every time I said John Smallberries, I was like, okay, that's funny. It's stupid. And he was the security guard? Yeah, it's stupid. I know I shouldn't laugh at that. I know. But every time they said Smallberries, I just laughed. I, I laughed every time. Uh, Big Bootay? Big Booty. Yeah. No, Bootay. Bootay, yes. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about it, it's pretty progressive because the evil aliens are all white guys. Yeah. And the good aliens come down and they're the black uh, Rastafarians, right? Yeah, yeah. So for for eighty four, I mean, that's probably why I did, that's your clutch the pearls moment, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, okay. What it just made me uncomfortable? Okay. <laughs> it, it does it make you uncomfortable because of the environment we live in today? No. Do you, so do you think like five years ago that would have played into it? Maybe I don't know. It's hard to take out context for now, but it is. I. I I'm with you. It feels like any media that I watch that's not being published today or filmed today, if you go back into the 70s or 80s, I, I'm not saying I feel guilty for watching anything, but I almost feel like I'm being affected with all of this. Well, we got to put a disclaimer on something. or well, we, and, and at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, I, I understand it's a different time. It's a different place. But um, there'll be a time when when you don't need to do that because it'll just be understood. You know, it's. It's kind of like, at, at some point in time, gay people won't have to come out as being gay because it's just it'll just be a thing. It'll be fine. Yeah. Like, it should be right now, but you know, people have to say, "Well, I'm sorry, I'm gay," and people are like, "Oh, that's you know, whatever." But at some point in time, it would just be I'm just a person. You know, it's like, you know, someday we're not going to have to see the Jungle Book on Disney Plus and it have, you know, that warning before it starts because it'll just be we understand that it was from the fifties or the sixties and it was just different. So yeah. hopefully we get to there. No, I, I, I think the conversation is good. I think it's one of those uncomfortable transitions you got to go through. Yeah. Yeah. But at, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like science fiction specifically, and I think science fiction's always been this way. If, if you really take a step back, science fiction has been extremely progressive for a while. Oh well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's always been that genre. I mean, just, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is one of the most political commentaries <laughs> out there, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it, and it takes place within science Didn't fiction. Captain Kirk and Aurora like kiss on screen. Yeah, yeah. And it, so 
I don't know if this genre, like I said, be, Buckaroo Banzai specifically is like, oh, well, we're, um, uh, how do I say it? Like trying to take a stereotype and exploit it or something of that nature. I actually think it's trying to be a little progressive if you take a step back from yeah. it in terms of who the villains and the heroes are. Um, what's the film that we just talked about that just annoyed me because, oh, uh, it was the Firefly Serenity because everybody's speaking Chinese and there's oh, no reason yes, for them to speak yes, Chinese. Yes. Whereas this one, it feels like that whole samurai Bushido thing that Buckaroo Banzai does, the Hong Kong Cavaliers. It, it doesn't, how do I say this? It, it feels original. It feels a, it feels fresh. Like you just totally buy into it. And I think it's because of the setup and everything else. Whereas what Joss Whedon was doing with Serenity and Firefly where everybody's just putting like, you know, let me speak Chinese right here. Well, okay, you're putting Chinese motif and Chinese culture here and there, but there's really no explanation for it. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I, you know, it just, anytime there's like a stereotypical character, it just, you know, at some point in time, it just makes me feel a little uncomfortable. But you're right. It's probably just because we're more sensitive to that stuff now. So. And, and rightly so. I, yeah. I think we got to go back and look at it from a critical perspective. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, man, it, entertainment was trying to push boundaries probably right in front of us and we weren't smart enough to recognize it. And, you know, as much as people will look at stuff now and go, Ooh, that's not so good to say. I think we are going to find a bunch of movies and I think they've always been there where people are like, wow, look what they were trying to do. And, and you know, it, yeah, it was Conan's. subtle. Remember Conan? Yeah, Conan's yeah. is a great example. Yeah. Our, our second movie that we talked about. I mean, they're they're all over that and kind of poking fun at, you know, immigration and everything else. And, it, and it's right there in this, you know, stupid comedy. So Absolutely. What did you think about the alien designs in general? Um, you, know, you, got, you got the red lectoids and the black ones, lectoids, yeah, right? I mean, it was, sadly, the budget really wasn't there to make them. I mean, it was obviously men in rubber suits, but it was it was cool, like... And alien wearing a suit, I'm always going to think that's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, you know, and it's also funny, like, some of the shootouts, they're, like, just in, like, this office, and they happened in these hallways, and you're just like, well, this is just what they had. So, but, no, the, the alien stuff, I think, is fine. And, you know, aliens wearing sunglasses, too. So <laughs> stupid, but it's like, Brad, you shouldn't be laughing at this, but it's an alien in a suit with sunglasses on, I'm going to laugh. So and I, I always find it funny when they were consuming electricity, like oh. when they're sitting in the car and he's just sucking on a car battery yeah. or like sipping through a straw in a car battery and John Lithgow hooking up all the electrodes. Yeah. And Dude, when he's like got all those electrodes, like on his tongue and stuff, I just, ugh. can I tell you the part that grossed me out the most? What? Really? There's yeah. okay. When he licks his hand cause the formula's on there and he smacks it on the guy's forehead. That grossed like, you oh, out? Gross. Don't lick your hand and put it on me. Is that like a COVID thing? Yeah, it's a COVID thing now, but this is gross. Oh, my God. You know what I'm going to do later. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, that kind of goes into the set design and everything else. I always, Every time I see this film, there's always something in the background, be it a costume or the spaceship design or the creatures or something else of that nature that really kind of sticks out. I, I love that the aliens, the ships, we kind of mentioned it towards the beginning everything has that ocean crustacean kind of feel to yeah, it yeah even even the little uh pipe that uh what's his face was sucking on he's talking to the two hicks oh yeah it, it, that, that's what i noticed i'm like is that like a i don't know squid octopus pipe thing he's doing 
But it's those little details that really, I don't know, flesh out this world, this sort of crazy world. And I, I love they that. They thought about those things. And it's weird that for this movie, they thought about those things. Well, even the little device that uh, Rawhide was using at the beginning when Buckaroo Banzai is doing the surgery, and he has this stick with a little video monitor that's hooked up to this headset, and he's sort of giving this narration. It's the little technology details, or when they're t- when they're torturing Buckaroo Banzai to try and get the formula in the shock chair or whatever. Yeah, that whole get up. It's it's amazing how much detail went into the props or the creature design, and like even that slug that is going towards Penny, like you yeah, know, little yeah. I mean, it didn't look great, but I mean, they designed it like in a really cool way. It um, just it has this, I guess, low budget Corman, yeah, gorilla. It, it, Definitely does. It definitely has that. We should have way more money to do this, and it, and it works though. Yeah, it's got charm. It does. I you know those. I'm fascinated with all those movie books that come out, especially the Star Wars ones when they come back and they go, "Well, here's the art of something." Yes, and here's the art concept of what Kylo Ren's helmet was going to look like. Yeah, and and then you know, 15 versions later, and then this is what showed up on screen. I would love an art of Buckaroo Banzai. Because if you think about just the costume design for each of those characters and the wardrobe, um, you know they were just experimenting. I mean, take John Lithgow, for example, between the hair color and his you know double trench coats with medals, et cetera. You know they had different variations leading up to it. Um, and even the creatures and the spaceships. I, I would have loved to have seen all of the artwork and art design that would have gone into this. Yeah, I, I, it's a little bit disappointing that like the car... like. It's just like a truck. It's a Ford truck. It's a Ford truck with some stuff on it. It's like, I wish that was a little cooler, but I understand. They had $17 million, and it's like, (laughs) eh. That's why I love the comic book. Because if you look at the pages in the comic book or that comic magazine, it has some great artwork that... I, I think it looks good on screen. It really translates really well within that comic book in, in and of itself, I'm especially sure, yeah. the aliens and stuff like they that. They really put a, like a turbine engine on the back of that thing. I know. It was real. It, it was it was cruising. But so one of the things I thought about is blue flames are hotter than orange flames, obviously. Like yeah. Jets. Are, are you jets. talking science again? It's like, I don't know if 500 miles an hour would be possible with that one jet turbine that was only orange so this means it's not going as fast so mm, i don't know if if the scientologist institute <laughs> yeah, was creating it, it. Yeah. yeah i'm i'm in yeah but <clears throat> the other little details that i liked is the declaration of war short form just oh yes, yes. <laughs> stuff like the comedy i think comes just from the oh the oddest president, and, like the, the president hurt his back and he's in that thing herniated disc yeah, or something like disc that and he's like oh yeah, but it, it's it's those elements that just make me smile because the comedy comes from places you just don't expect. Yeah, it, it's a little. I want to say it's like a little Mel Brooksian, a little bit, but it it's it's knocking on the door. Yeah, but it never goes fully over. Yeah, it right? doesn't. Go, yeah, it's it, not full young Frankenstein. Yeah, there's no space balls. Yeah. you know, in here or anything like that. But it, it, it's it's almost there. So no, it the comedy in this is was actually more what I picked up this time than in previous times before. Um, it's not as seemingly as random as I kind of remembered. Like, there is, but it seems like it's purposeful. It, it you is. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, well, no, I agree with you. I think, take the Christopher Lloyd stuff that's going on in the background. As much as Christopher Lloyd is interacting with John Lithgow and they have this great comedic 
all of them have this great comedic relationship, those red lectoids. I mean, even John Lithgow goes up there because the TV isn't working and Christopher Lloyd's trying to eat Doritos or something. And as soon as he fixes the TV, he like smacks him. And then John Lithgow kind of, you know, is all proud of himself because he got the TV to work. It's those little elements that always make me laugh. And they're so subtle. I, I like I like movies that you have to pay attention to to get the most out of it. And yeah. I think Buckaroo Banzai is one of those. Well, they get better when you see them multiple times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the thing, I always remember this being, I don't want to say action-packed, but I remember there being a lot of action. I think there's a lot of adventure in the yeah, film. I wouldn't necessarily call it like action, but when the action happens, it's very breezy, but I am genuinely surprised when somebody gets shot or hurt. Like I, as many times as I've seen this thing, there are a couple of instances where I kind of jump in my, because you don't expect it. You're expecting everybody to, you know, think of the GI Joe cartoons yeah, where you have red lasers and blue lasers going and back and forth, miss. and everybody's missing. Even Star Wars up to a certain point. Yeah, stormtroopers can't yeah. hit anything, right? Yeah. But in this one, people are like yeah. dying. They're and, snapping necks. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's crazy. Uh, and for something that's supposed to be sort of light and breezy and adventurous, when that stuff happens, you you kind of feel it a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so at the very end of the movie, with the whole dancing thing, like Rawhide is. In that yeah. sequence. Yep. I thought he died. Uh, he did. Okay, but he came back? I don't know. Yeah, okay. I mean. Sure. I think it's just one of those uh, oh, yeah, credit. Yeah. I, from what I understand, again, just uh, watching that documentary, it was something that they just wanted to do and add to the end of it. Yeah. So it was all filmed way after the um, regular production was shot. Um, and even, you know, Perfect Tommy had to come back and is like, I got to dye my hair again or so, but it's, I don't know. It, it brings everybody back together. It's fun. I, I, I really think it's the perfect credit sequence for this film. Cause I, I just couldn't imagine them putting just a, I don't know, a black background and then having a bunch of names go names. across it. Well, it is, I mean, you know, Buck Rubanzai against the what World Crime League was like going to yeah, be yeah. I I I read or it might have been Space on the documentary. Balls search for more money. They they were trying to do like five movies for this thing. Yeah, and and even the screenwriter when they were coming up with the concept, I mean, he would do a story and he would do twenty or thirty pages of a screenplay, and then you know Richter and everybody would come back and go, well, this looks good, but hey, uh, Earl, go back and fine-tune this, this, and this. And then Earl will show up the next day with a new 20 or 30 pages. And it wasn't rewrites or edits of what he showed the day before. It was a whole new sequence. Huh. So okay. just getting this down to like 90 or 100 pages for a film I, apparently was very difficult because um, Earl Routes just... he. He was going in, you know, 90 different directions. Yeah, you can tell this guy's going in a lot of different directions doing this movie. Yeah, and I think the comic book that they're going to release this August, or graphic novel, is going to be the uh, follow-up to this film. But the the World Crime League is mentioned, um, I I know, sort of in the beginning. Okay. Where uh, there's a bomb. So what's supposed to happen, and again, they filmed this but never used it, is the parents die because somebody put a bomb in the original rocket car and it was the world, the guy who runs the world crime league. Oh, okay. But they cut all that out. And so just start with, you know, this whole mysterious introduction of Buckaroo Banzai, uh, which I think works better. Yeah. I mean, if you go back and look at that Jamie Lee Curtis uh, stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a home movie with rawhide voicing over like who huh. Buckaroo is and stuff okay. like that. And it, and it's cool to see, but it doesn't fit 
I think the way this movie starts with that brief description, and you're like, "What is going? Buckaroo Banzai, Hong Kong Cavaliers, scientists, yeah, musicians." You're like, and then all of a sudden, boom! He's you know, brain surgery and rocket science, yes. and you're like, uh, "Rocket uh, car, rocket car." It's like, uh, okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> I'm in. So they also tried to make a TV show out of this. Oh yeah, you want to talk about that? Yeah, from what I read, like Buckaroo Banzai, the ancient secrets and new mysteries, I believe, is what it's going to be. And it turned out the people who were making it didn't have the rights. and uh, That's kind of important. Yeah, so, so it got shut down. And then I think I read somewhere where Kevin Smith was attached to do, do something for Amazon Studios in like 2016. And then I think he said, no, he's not going to do that anymore. So um, who owns the rights to this? I think it's MGM. Yeah, it, MGM yeah. originally, but it was it was distributed by Fox. Fox, yes, that's correct. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, I think I don't think that we've seen the last of Buckaroo Banzai. Maybe, maybe on the big screen, probably so. But I could definitely see something like this working on some sort of streaming service. I mean, at some point in time, they're going to go back and re do this in some sort of fashion. You, you I, I think, think so? They have to. I think they're going to. I, I have no a... <laughs> new ideas, so they're going to go back and, and do this because it has a little bit of cachet, but not as much, there's not as much baggage with it, so you, they can pretty much do what they want, and, you know, they just have to follow that, you know, American mother, Japanese father, neurosurgeon, rocket science. That's the only thing you have to kind of, follow and if you get that you can just go on these adventures i don't know i i i feel like i i want to believe that i'm excited that there's another buckaroo bonsai story coming out this year so i i will be there day one when that graphic novel comes out or that comic book series comes out because i i do want more of it but i feel like this is one of those films that the longer you get away from it the more of a niche market it is and so if it does become a Netflix TV show or because I mean, it'll show up on some streaming service yeah, yeah. because like you said, I, there's no original ideas anymore. You're just going to go mine the past for whatever the next big franchise is. And this could be a big franchise, but I don't know when I just, I can't see them doing anything with this that would be as original or fresh as what they did in the eighties. I, I think they would gravitate to one aspect of it and then stick to it and it's kind of like Big Trouble in Little China when I heard that uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson bought the rights to it and was going to do a remake, and boy, the internet. Dude, they really hated that idea. Yeah, it's a bad idea. I agree. And then he came back and said, well, it's not going to be a remake. It's going to be a reimagining sequel. I don't know. He And then he backtracked a little bit. I mean, that's a franchise that I think John Carpenter, that name alone kept that sort of uh, Big Trouble in Little China going. Yes. Because Boom Comics was doing the, you know, Big Trouble comic books, the old Jack Burton. I mean, they did Escape from New York. So I think I think the name of John Carpenter kept that going. I don't know if there's a creative entity associated with this, like John Carpenter was for Big Trouble in Little China, yeah, to keep that point. going. And I don't think, um, again, as much as I love Jeff Goldblum, I love Peter Weller, um, John Lithgow, is, you know, he owns this film. I don't think any of them are a big enough draw yeah. to create a, a Buckaroo Banzai franchise. I, I would love for something 
another film, another TV show to be made off of this. But I would put more faith in a Remo Williams remake from Shane Black. <laughs> oh my god! Um, because I mean, that's like 150 books on the Destroyer series. Yes, and I think it is a simpler story to tell. This one, I, I think, <laughs> I think any creative entity would look at this and go, "I don't know how to tackle this well, one." I'm, but it's the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, so. This is just one of his adventures. Oh, I understand, but I yeah. think I think it's the tone. I oh, think yeah, I yeah. think it's I, I get it. That that's why I think The Rock could look at, you know, Big Trouble in Little China and go, I can do that movie. I mean, it has Asian influences. Let me just go watch some uh, Hong Kong movies from the 80s and and I'm going to imitate Kurt Russell and boom, I I've, I've got and I'm not again, I'm not oversimplifying Big Trouble in Little China. I think it's a brilliant film. We'll talk in more detail about it, but I think this is a tougher nut to crack than Big Trouble in Little China. Oh gosh, yes, yes, yes. And and the thing I love about this thing is, it is every genre of film out there in one. Okay, however, it defies every genre out there. So I I can't think of another film, and I'll just pick a couple of them. I can't think of a science fiction action musical that borrows from those genres. And makes it part of their DNA, the, its DNA, but then turns around and pushes the limits of those genres or defies those genres in the same breath. Yeah. You I, said like, you know, sci-fi action. And I was like, well, we did Streets of Fire, but that's really not, sci- is that sci-fi? No, I, I no not but really it's not, yeah. the tone of it is definitely different than but this. but even streets of fire i think plays into like a western motif yeah so and, that, and that's the difference like bit. you know that's a good example streets of fire might take a rock and roll fantasy or might take a western motif and just say we got to go get the girl now the bad guys are coming to town it borrows heavily from that but it doesn't it's a rock and roll fable Fable, excuse me. It, it doesn't push the limits of that genre, okay? It plays within that genre. Buckaroo Banzai plays within that genre, but then defies that genre in the same film. Yes. yes. So it's like, we're going to give you a science fiction film, but we're going to the, push the limits of that science fiction film. We're going to give you a Yacht Rock movie <laughs> with a little bit of edge, but then we're even going to defy that aspect of it. Yeah, because Yacht Rock cannot not have edge. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> Go listen to some Billy Vera. It's good. It's real good. But no, that, that's why I love this film because every time I go back and watch it, uh, and again, I'm, I'm a product of the 80s. I know my, my nostalgia in and of itself blinds me from sort of any critical response to this film. But even then, as critical as I try to be watching this film, when that watermelon scene comes up, I'm like, I can't, <laughs> well, I can't do it. I'm that's tapping it. out. I, it, I just, I can't stop loving it, man. All right. What else? Time for the question. All right. Well, Brad is the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension from 1984 directed by WD Richter. Is it a bomb? I would say it's not because I'm actually kind of excited to watch it again after we talked about it. Cause you brought up some things that I totally did not see, and I want to go back and make sure I, like, catch those things. And I think that's a sign of, like, a fun movie, that you, like, want to go back and not watch what's happening to Buckaroo Banzai, but what's happening in the background and what, like, look at some of kind of the window dressing going on. So 
Um, yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of things going on in this movie that I, I think, I, again, I don't know if Peter Weller is, is a great charismatic lead, but, you know, <laughs> whatever. But, no, it's not a bomb. Okay. I, I agree 100%. I mean, I grew up on this film. It's, you know, Buckaroo Banzai, Ninjas, uh, <laughs> Kung Fu movies, Dungeons, all of that stuff, comic books. Um, that was the basis of my friendship with Kevin. So I totally understand. And we talk about this movie quite a bit and we quote it. So if you don't like this movie, then apparently you don't like Kevin. So you have to like it. Yes. And Kevin, uh, hands Monkey down, Boy. is one of the just greatest human beings I know. Uh, amazing father, amazing best friend. Uh, and every time I watch this film, it does bring me back to those days of just sitting in the basement, playing Nintendo, staying up till odd hours, watching Buckaroo Banzai, going playing some Nintendo again, reading a comic book. But even then at, you know, my 40 something year age, and I'm looking <laughs> at this, 40, uh, yeah, 40, 40 something. Um, it, it brings me back to that friendship and that relationship that again, I I've known Kevin, um, long long time no and it, it's impossible to like separate yourself from that like it's impossible it is and and i i can't look at this critically but even when i try to look at it critically i'm still erring on the side that no film out there even in today's standards and i'm, I'm talking about the history of film comes close to this one in terms of trying to be everything but at the same time trying to, you know, just redefine everything as well. <laughs> trying to be everything and then nothing all at the same time. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, yeah. it's it's just such a fascinating film. And, and again, if you told me, look, in order to get a copy of this film, to own it from a physical perspective, you'd have to pay $100. I'd be like, no. Yeah. Just go to the – that's stupid. This is one of those rare occasions that, look, if they're not going to release it again, if Criterion's not going to put an edition out or something of that nature, to me, it's worth 100 bucks. We man. could get a, like a 4K release maybe at some point in time. I would love a 4K yeah. release. But I would also like, <laughs> if, if, there, if I had a wish list, if there was one thing I wanted to come out of this film, it would be the art of Buckaroo Banzai. I want that movie book so bad. Okay, We'll see what we can do. We'll okay. email them. We'll start that campaign now. Oh, dude, we could start emailing like MGM or whoever owns the rights to it. Yeah. Say, we don't want your TV show. We want the production art of Buckaroo Banzai. All right. Well, listen, um, that was fun. Yeah. I, usually I know exactly how long we've been recording because I have Audacity running and I can see that I have no, I literally have no idea how long we've been going. So. I don't know either. I'm not even paying attention. So let's talk about next week real quick. Um, it is Your my pick. pick. Yes. It is. Okay. So one of the movies that we put on the list originally, I, when we talk about movies that are not a bomb, I, I don't know, Brad, is, is there like a Holy grail of a film out there? I mean, there's probably Five that are known as like all time biggest bombs of all time. Um, I said all time twice, but uh, the biggest you know bombs of all time. I you know I think Syriana's no not Syriana the the Matthew McConaughey movie with uh, Sahara Sahara's on there. Uh, Waterworld is on there. I believe what the what did we do uh, just recently that was like a huge. It lost like $80 million. 
was that? <laughs> well, there's oh, like, man from Uncle. Yeah, man from Uncle. Okay. So the thing of it is, is like the discussion of bombs is pretty prevalent now. I mean, if you if you look at the the studios today and how they work, it's a business, Troy. It's a pure business, and I think you and I were talking about this earlier today. The question came up, you know, would this director ever get forty million dollars again? And we're like, nope. And really, today in Hollywood, it's like, well, here's a million dollars, go make a film. Or here's $200 million and go make a film. That we can make a franchise out of. That we make a franchise. And, yeah. and everything has to test well and everything. So there are very few movies out there that at the end of the day, um, when they bomb, they totally sort of tank a studio. But there is one film oh, yes. that is notorious. It's so bad that at one point it was in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the biggest bomb. And it had a lot to do with why a studio went under. So this was on our list from the start. And it was one of the films that um, when we talk about bomb movies, for some reason to me, this is like the film that I hold a lot of movies up to. And it is none other than 1995's Cutthroat Island directed by Rennie Rennie Harlan. Harlan. Yes. And starring Gina Davis and Matthew Modine. It's a pirate movie. It is Brad. a pirate movie. It's it's before pirates were cool. Yeah, it's before Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes. Even. So this will be a fun one because if I, I guarantee we'll spend a little bit of time about not just the numbers, but really what happened with the release of this because it had a shocking effect across Hollywood studios. Yes, it did. It was the final film for the 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 People who put it out. So um, we are going to have a guest. Um, It is someone from the VHS files that is not Josh. Uh Uh-oh. Josh is going to be mad. It is going to be Eric from the VHS files. So um, we will have a third person on. Um, We're looking forward to that. Uh, Eric is a good guy. So we're excited to have a third person. I was telling Troy, I have not seen Cutthroat Island in, oh boy, probably 20 years. Yes, and I just watched it. Because, <laughs> of course, you did. Well, no, it was when I, I think it was when we were kicking around the idea of the podcast, and it was like, hey, we should talk about this. And it's like, oh, that's funny. Uh, and I, I was like, well, I'm going to go back and watch Cutthroat Island because at the time we were talking, I'm like, when, when are we going to do a podcast? So I wanted to go watch it again. And then all of a sudden we started doing a podcast, and I wanted to put this on the list immediately. So I'm excited to go back and revisit it. I'm I'm a big Gina Davis fan. I, I like Rennie Harlan too. So yeah, I. What nightmare did he do? Did he do four? I forget which one he did, but um, yeah, I I kind of like pirate movies. I, I do too. So I'm curious to see if I because I really remember nothing about it. So I'm I'm excited. Yeah, and I'm excited to have Eric too. I again VHS Files, fantastic podcast. They they've been doing a lot of different formats out there. I've been going through like their horror section, then their film of the week. I think the next one they just did was like a Good top, top four. four. Yep. So real fun podcast. And and again, please go listen to them. Listen to Friends with Cinefits. Alex has gone to a different format where he's doing once a month. So I'm excited to see what uh, they're gonna bring out because he's got a um, co-host now. Yeah. Going forward. And then listen to Night of Living Podcast, Friends, uh, or excuse me, Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Um, I don't know. What else, Brad? What else should they listen to? I don't know. I, well, I want to reiterate, like, if you listen to something and you really like it, 
like share it with your friends yes and, and just kind of pass it along um you know because usually your friends are going to be people who are into the same thing you are you know it might be buckaroo bonsai um so you know if you like a podcast odds are they're going to like it too so just kind of pass it around um do yourself that favor do yourself the favor of the people who create it um what did we say when we first started this 850,000 podcasts? Like that's... There's more. Yeah. So even there's even more now. So there's probably, you know, a million podcasts. Yeah. And, and I, I would say this, the there's a lot of film podcasts that I listen to. There are a handful that no matter what they put out, I, I listen to. And those are the ones that we talk about. So yeah. NOTLP, The Gentleman's Guide, uh, VHS Files. Another one I, I will listen to is Film Junk. There's a lot of podcasts out there that I will only listen to if they bring up a movie that I'm interested in. So I know for listeners that we have, I'm sure we have like one, two, maybe three <laughs> that will listen to everything out there. But I also know that we also have listeners that will only listen to us if there's a particular movie that interests them. So Brad, the if somebody wanted to send us a recommendation of a bomb that they wanted to hear us talk about so that they would listen to the podcast. Where would they send that information? That is uh, notabombpod at gmo.com. Um, we also have a spot on our website. Um, if you go to notabombpodcast.com, there's a contact us um, kind of link in the navigation bar, if you will, and you can um, fill out that form and you can give us a, your recommendation there. Um, Troy and I are always looking for reviews on iTunes and wherever you get, or I think it's Apple podcast now, um, you know, wherever you get our podcast, if you want to leave us a kind word, if you have any criticism, you can send it to us and let us know, Hey, do this or do that. Or I would like to hear, you know, something else sometimes. So, you know, we're up to any sort of kind of feedback and things like that. So yeah, any feedback. It's the interaction. I, I don't. I don't get my feelings hurt. No, so. we we just love talking with you guys. Um, yeah, and we got the gals out there. Person today, like yeah. it is still kind of shocking to me that you're sitting in my kitchen. So, dude, it was a long car drive, but it was I worth know, it. I know. I know. I uh, love you, man. Yeah, I love you too, man. It's been a long time. You I know. know. I was it, been really excited to. You said, you know, hey, I'm coming, and you know, it, it was like, oh wow, I'm gonna get to see Troy, and it was this kind of happened and it was kind of a shock because I really haven't seen a whole lot of people in the past year. So no. And Hey, this, this goes out specifically to Brad and I's um, friends and family. We can't thank you enough for all the kind words that you've sent us. Um, you know, again, I've, I've gone on and on about Kevin. He's been a fantastic contributor, Alex. Um, I, We've met new people, Ben, yeah, yeah. Josh. I mean, yeah. Sammy's done some amazing stuff for us, but uh, I, I would love to sit here and just list all of the names of people who interact with us. Um, ben, Nick, everybody. Yeah. We are so grateful that we've just created this bond and friendship. And especially in a year like this, like Brad said, I, when I found out that I was kind of being forced to take vacation and my family was, you know, hey, we still have school. You need to get out of the house. The first thing I wanted to do was come in and see Brad and, and see Charlie and Brett and everybody in this area and uh, just connect. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and that's what this whole idea of the podcast is, is to sit down, put our voice out there and in some way kind of connect with you, even though we may not be in the same room having a bourbon and talking about some stupid film. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm really grateful for everybody listening. I'm super grateful that uh, 
you, you send us emails or you, you text us with, you know, some fun bits of information. Um, John for correcting me every time I get something wrong about like the <laughs> army or Navy or air force. C or, plus it was a C plus. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. But that, that's the fun part of it. Right. And Brad, you know, correcting me in person about clue. <laughs> I, I don't know why I ever doubt you, but, uh, I, I just, all the friends and family, thank you for all the support. I am looking forward to this year and the rest of the year when everybody gets their shots and uh, becomes a little bit safer, and we all get together. That, that's what I'm looking forward to more than anything. I, I don't want like a fancy vacation to no, Hawaii or no. you know wherever it is. Just, I want to go to a horror convention. Yeah, I want to I go to a convention where there's a bunch of people that I know, and, and all of us can kind of sit down and just hang out. Absolutely. Um, what else, Brad? Are we missing anything? I don't know, man. No, I don't think so. All right. Well, hey, look, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or the evening. Just remember, wherever you go, there you are. Oh, yes. Wow. <laughs> Thank you and have a nice day.